guys, Comic Boom here. Uh, without Jace of the Comic Source podcast this week, because Jace, unfortunately, he's battling COVID. Uh, I'm sorry to report. And uh, well, you know, uh, so those listening on the Comic Source uh, podcast, it's just going to be me uh, reviewing no less than 15 DC titles. Today, I'll, uh, <laughs> tonight all by myself, but, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I had a tornado come through my parts here in Southern Alberta and Jace was nice enough to sort of, uh, do the entire review by himself. So it looks like I'm doing it here. And, uh, certainly I, I, I wish Jace a happy recovery from COVID. He's still dealing with that. And so, um... Without further ado, guys, I'll do my best to get through all of these comic books. Uh, there's a lot this week. There is, like I said, uh, there's 15 and there's actually, there's a, uh, yeah, there's actually, and there's even two, um, oh, where is it? There's two sort of Azrael comics this week. DC really kind of screwed up on their, uh, on their timing on some of these, but it's actually a good week. A lot of good comics. We got the premiere of uh, the new champion of Shazam, Mary Marvel. We got the second issue of Chip Sardowski's Batman, where he's fighting uh, Failsafe. We got the fourth issue of Flashpoint Beyond, uh, which continues to ramp up. We got Dark Crisis number three, which, uh, interestingly enough, is now... It's uh, the the title page I have that I um, that I'll be showing doesn't actually say Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths, but that's actually what it is. It's actually the third issue of Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths since DC's renumbering all of that. We got the final issue of Batman Killing Joke by Tom King and David Marquez. We got the third issue of Poison Ivy by J. Willow Wilson. We've got Black Adam Cyclone, which is a movie comic talking at you. Delving into the origins of Cyclone, that is specifically the Cyclone uh, superhero for that will be in the Black Adam movie in in uh, this year, and we got the eight, eighth issue of DC versus Vampires. We got Teen Justice uh, Multiversity issue three, Batman Beyond Neo Year number five, uh, Sword of Israel number one. And uh, if I'm missing something there, I guess we'll just have to get into it. So without further ado, guys, uh, let's get right into this. Uh, and the first one being Batman White Knight Presents Red Hood. This is one where uh, I, uh, this one I was really looking forward to. Uh, Sean Gordon Murphy has been just doing a great job. Uh, I mean, Batman, you know, DC might be filled with a lot of Batman. We know that. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that, Batman's a great character, and DC, quite frankly, I'm enjoying the vast majority of what DC's putting out for Batman comics. He's just one of those characters. And, you know, Sean Gordon Murphy, Sean Murphy, as he, I guess he, he wants to go by Sean Murphy now, I guess, because that's, you know, the, he's got rid of the Gordon aspect. But Sean Murphy, uh, the so-called Murphyverse, continues to shine. And in this issue, we get an origin, uh, we get, we get an origin touched upon for Red Hood, Red Hood in the Murphy verse. And so, uh, without further ado, I mean, uh, one, one of, one of the, uh, one of the things that comes, uh, apparent right, right in this Batman, this Murphy verse Batman, White Knight presents Red Hood. Again, Sean Murphy is the writer, uh, Clay, Clay McCormick is the, uh, with Clay McCormick as Simon DeMille on the art with Dave Stewart on the colors. One thing that becomes quite apparent here with this is, 
just how some of the things that he this this does differently in the origins of Red Hood, and and just for those of you who don't know, this is obviously going to be this contains spoilers, spoilers. and and the formative uh, we know in the formative origin of Red Hood uh, in the mainstream DC universe, we know that Red Hood was essentially that Jason Todd was killed by the Joker and was ultimately resurrected through a ridiculous series of events involving Superboy prime hitting the wall of reality leading up to infinite infinite crisis in any event in this in the murphy verse jason todd is not killed by the joker because he gives up bruce wayne's secret identity <laughs> and uh and uh, you know it shocks the joker it shocks the joker so much that he basically lets instead of slitting jason todd's neck he basically lets him go he says you know what there's no greater uh, there's no greater kind of tragedy than betrayal uh, betrayal it, when brute when batman figures out that you betrayed his secret identity jason the fact of the matter is is that you know that you're gonna have a fate worse than death and it's that shame even though bruce wayne wouldn't likely have sh- necessarily have cast out jason todd for revealing his secret identity the fact is is that jason todd uh, guilted him so so much, felt so much shame by revealing in in his out of his fear for his life uh, of being killed, possibly being killed by the Joker, and by revealing Batman's secret identity to him, his shame leads him to become essentially an alcoholic, and. It's a what what Sean uh, what Sean Murphy does here to great effect is you you really get a sense you really get to know this Jason Todd and he doesn't waste this entire issue what I like about it is that it doesn't waste a lot of time going through and giving you every detail of the origin it just gives you kind of like the bullet points all you really need to know is Jason Todd Jason Todd in the Murphy's Murphy verse wasn't killed by the Joker he just quit being Robin. He, he was the first Robin, but he quit being the first Robin because out of a sense of shame and guilt, and he ran away because uh, he failed Batman. He betrayed Batman and revealed his secret identity. And uh, ultimately, he kind of, that's why he left uh, the Bat fold. And ultimately, when he ends up, th- this story is really about Jason Todd making his way back into Gotham City, where he meets uh, a new character by the name of... Um, uh, her her name is Gone. She's the new Robin. Her name is Gan, as in gigantic. She, this this sort of uh, uh, this rather uh, large woman. Although she's not she's not like fat or anything, but she's sort of like big boned, and she's a very she's a wannabe Robin. She's not actually part of the Batman family. She's not you know. There's Nightwing and there's Barbara Gordon and uh, Jason Todd. Of course, is sort of like the outcast here as well, but. He's not in the picture. And when Jason Todd comes back into the picture, this Gan woman, this gigantic, uh, she was called gigantic because her friends bothered, bugged her for, for being gigantic when she was in school. So it, can, it kind of became a teaser of a name. She wants Jason Todd because Jason Todd actually stumbles. Jason Todd ends up <laughs> stumbling upon a couple of ne'er-do-wells and he ends up getting in an entanglement with this this you know gan woman and uh, she wants him uh, she ends up ultimately breaking jason todd out of prison and wanting him to help train her to become a, a the best robin that she can be because he used to be robin and he knows a lot of batman's tricks and that's ultimately the central conceit of this of this issue and it, it works very well. It works very well. Um, now, now it helps this new Gan character essentially try to, uh, you know, 
try to apprehend this uh, the bad this bad guy called Shriek because Gan wants to make a name for herself to impress Batman to become Robin. Now this is in the past, and um, uh, and this this sort of opening issue, this book one of Red Hood. This is Red. This is Jason Todd. A recovering alcoholic, but he's he's seeing parts of himself maybe a little bit in Gan. Like he he sort of finds he finds his second win by by actually he's inspired by this Gan, this woman who or this young girl who not young girl. I guess she's she's certainly looks like an older teenager. I'm guessing she's sixteen or seventeen years of age, and um, he wants to he wants to train her, and she wants to, and, but she's not very good. She's afraid of heights, so she can't. You know, she does. She wants to swing. You know, he wants to teach her how to use a grappling hook, and she's not particularly good at using a grappling hook. And she feels kind of embarrassed, and she feels insecure. Maybe she shouldn't even want to be a Robin. And and then all of a sudden, she sees. Uh, you know, she ends up stopping. Uh, some some mug some guys that are robbing a food mart and Jason Todd sees that she's pretty damn good at throwing a punch and at tackling people and she realizes that this woman's got a pretty good ground game and he he figures that he's got to train her like Batman trained him in other words you don't the key isn't to train Gan to be like him or to be like Batman the tree is the the key is to tr- to train Gan the focusing on her strengths and her strengths is a ground game and that's ultimately what he plans on doing and that's that's really how this issue ends now there's a lot of great character work here there is a there's a great scene between when <laughs> when Jason Todd becomes a uh, Jason Todd actually helps with the mugging. That's how he initially meets Gan. And he ends up having a confrontation with Nightwing. And he actually embarrasses Nightwing by knocking, uh, giving Nightwing a shot to the head. And then Nightwing ultimately knocks him out. And he spends some time in, in jail before breaking out of jail. And there's some, there's some really good character work here. And I think that people are really going to enjoy this. People who have been enjoying White Hood so far, or the, pardon me, the White Knight series so far, this is right up their alley. And uh, the, this is uh, Murphy, Sean Murphy's done a really good job here at, in terms of making the Murphyverse almost, you know, really uniquely his own. He's done different things with Harley Quinn, with the Joker, with Batman, and Jason Todd is absolutely no exception. And of course, we got this new character, Gan, uh, who is uh, quite quite very interesting and funny in her own right. And I, I like this Jason Todd. He's uh, he's someone who, who feels a sense of shame uh, for what, uh, for betraying Batman early on and his relationship with the Joker early on. And, and I like how it, Murphy gives enough uh, he gives enough leeway to the reader that we can fill in the blanks and he doesn't spoon feed us all the information. We can kind of fill in the blanks along the way. And I got a full compliments to the to the art artist here. Uh, again, the art by uh, uh, I guess Simon DeMio on the arts. Really good stuff. Uh, so Sean Murphy with Clay McCormick on the writing, Dave Stewart on the colors. Really fantastic. Uh, the variant covers here are gorgeous as well. I mean, there's there's four covers here, just really gorgeous stuff. Uh, and particularly the one, my, my favorite is the one with Gan, this this new Robin. Her first name is Gan. Uh, uh, just really, really gorgeous art and, and a good story. Great start. It's definitely wet my appetite to learn more about this Red Hood in the Murphyverse. And it's interesting. I don't remember seeing Gan in, I'm I'm hoping she's, she doesn't end up dying or something, but this Gan character, this new Robin actually seems pretty damn interesting. Just when I thought, 
I'm I'm sick of Robins. There's a new Robin character that pops up in the Murphyverse, and I'm actually interested in it. So actually, it's uh, it's quite interesting. It's uh, and uh, guys, I would it's a high recommend. It's uh, definitely one of uh, I think it's one of the better comic books this week. Batman White Knight presents Red Hood Book One. Check it out, and um, yeah. So now. Leading into that leads us to the next Batman title, Batman 126. Now, this is Chip Sardaski. This is the uh, second issue of Chip Sardaski, and this deals with the character known as Failsafe. Because last issue, it, it looked as if the theory, I think the working theory is that Batman... Uh, Batman was accused the the penguin died in the last issue. He ended up being um he ended up dying and Batman he tried to blame Batman for his uh he tried to frame Batman for him being uh, di- uh dying in the hospital, but that in fact wasn't the case. But all the fallout from that, aside side fact that we have this new character executor wanting to read the will of the penguin and Catwoman's trying to find the the beneficiaries of the penguin, the children of the penguin, because they have an inheritance. Because uh, one of them is going to be inheriting the iceberg lounge and some properties. But in the B- Batman per se, the fallout from the death of the penguin is that the death of the penguin appears to have initiated something called a fail failsafe program, and it's this mechanical creature that is uh, extremely powerful. And what is uh, what what this issue is. I love this issue because Jorge, uh, uh, Jorge uh, Jimenez on the art here is just fantastic. I mean, the this issue essentially starts off with, you know, Tim Drake. Tim Drake is healing from the wound he had. He was almost killed in the first issue there uh, working, with the, uh, working with Batman in uh, taking out the, the Penguin. And in this issue, uh, Batman is still – Batman's still trying to piece together – you know what's going on, and it, while he's doing that, he gets attacked by failsafe. Now we know it's failsafe. And now Batman, uh, it's quite clear here that this issue is practically all action, and that's what I love about it. And its narration is Batman is constantly attacked by failsafe, and this failsafe is strong, and he's fast, and he's faster than Batman. He's better than Batman. He can't, uh, and but yet Batman does an amazing job trying to escape i mean he uses batman is knocked down he uses his grappling hook he, the batmobile takes off he grapples out of the back of the batmobile he the batmobile pulls him away to safety but failsafe is still after him and then out of the blue we've got we've got the signal that comes along to to help him out the signal uh, does a flip off a motorbike to, to attack to to kick failsafe and then stephanie brown cassandra kane shows up you got the whole bat family protecting bruce wayne because this failsafe seems to be focused exclusively on batman which is a good thing because failsafe could very clearly kill all the members of the bat family and 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 seems it has amazotech so it has uh, it has multiple different types of technologies that Batman seems to s- feel uh, familiar technologies to Batman as well as uh, Am- Amazotech and um, Amazo, Amazotech. I'm saying that wrong. And it's uh, m- my best scene here is, you know, you got you got Tim Drake pulling Batman away, trying to get Batman to safety <laughs> while uh, the signal and Cassandra Kane and Stephanie Brown, the Batgirls, are trying to keep failsafe at bay. Not doing a particularly good job. They're not particularly effective. So Batman takes off uh, with Tim Drake. They they got it to get Batman to safety. They got it. They 
that Tim Drake calls Leslie Tompkins in the cave and says, look, Batman's coming. He's seriously wounded. We got to get him to safety. Failsafe overhears that Batman's being taken in Leslie Tompkins. Meanwhile, uh, while they're taking off, Nightwing shows up and in an epic scene, he, 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 Tim Drake, you know, he says, you know, he apologizes for being late. He says traffic from Bloodhaven was a killer and and Nightwing literally takes his motorbike, beautifully illustrated by Zeminez, and and uh, he flies right off, springs board right off the Batmobile and just crashes his bike into failsafe whereas before the signal uh when the signal did that the signal didn't crash his bike into failsafe he just crashed himself like by kicking failsafe <laughs> nightwing did far did uh did the opposite and just just a fantastic scene and then after crashing the bike into failsafe nightwing looks so amazing you know grabbing the uh nunchucks out of his back there just looks really truly epic Absolutely gorgeous. I mean, Nightwing, Nightwing just seems so empowering, so powerful. He's asking Oracle, you know, do you have any, have you, do, what do we know about this fail safe? Have you identified any weaknesses? And they're, and so we got, we got, we got Nightwing, we got Signal, we got Cassandra Kane, we got uh, Stephanie Brown, uh, but fail safe can take them all out easily. And fail safe keeps talking, you know, talking to him like, you know, he's, he, he clearly is somebody who is very, very, powerful and and it's a machine and and yet it it seems to be able to know what's going on it seems to be able to know the bat family quite well sardaski does a very good job showing with a very few mi minimalist use of dialogue and words uh for failsafe as he sort of takes apart the bat family bit by bit meanwhile batman has tim drake take him not to leslie tompkins uh, but to the old Batcave, because Batman seems to know exactly who this is, or he seems to know what it is, and he seems to say that this is what he seems to know that this is what he created, and um, and he's really really concerned about it because he says uh, I've done this to myself. I'm only only one man could have done this to me. A failsafe for a failsafe. So he's. It's quite clear that. Batman himself did this to himself. It, I mean, all of us who were reading this in the first issue, many of us guessed accurately that this was likely a failsafe set up by Batman himself. And but it wasn't quite Batman himself. It was actually Zorana, who is the character uh, created by Grant Morrison, uh, so, which is uh, which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And Zorana is sort of like the alternate, sort of darker aspect of Bruce Wayne. Before Bruce Wayne had it, before Batman really had a bat family and he was by himself, he kind of had all kinds of crazy ideas as exemplified through the persona and the darker persona of Zorana. Uh, and again, readers of Grant Morrison's run will probably look at this and probably will be, I, I'm imagining, are going to be quite in, a, really enjoying this to see what Chip Sardaski does with it. But is it possible or it seems likely that failsafe is actually a mechanical failsafe device created by Zorana to come into existence or to activate itself upon a certain sequence of events that must have occurred uh, following the death of the penguin. And in any event, it's, I'm looking forward to, to where this is going. This is, so, this, this issue is so action packed, so well done. And the, the way Batman, uh, almost it's almost like maybe he knew failsafe was listening because failsafe shows up 
at Le- Leslie at the new cave where Leslie Tompkins is and failsafe is expecting to see Batman there, but he's not. Uh, it's only, it's only Leslie Tompkins. And it's interesting that failsafe failsafe is a, is a clearly a computerized mechanical construct running on a program that doesn't want to kill or hurt other members of the bat family. It will incapacitate them. It only, but it only wants to apparently kill Batman, which is very interesting. Why would Zerina want to kill Batman when Zerna is a, an aspect of of Bruce Wayne, which is manifest at the end of this issue. So interesting enough. Be interesting to hear your guys' comments on it. And um, yeah, so uh, a solid issue. I, I mean, the, the art was fantastic, absolutely fantastic. The coloring was fantastic. I mean, Mori um, uh, on the on the coloring, Gemini's on the art, Sadaskin. I'm 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 impressed. I'm impressed. Full props on this. Again, a really great Batman story this week. Good time to be a Batman fan. I got to tell you, uh, the backup with uh, Catwoman, Two Birds, One Throne, Part Two. Trip Sardaski's writing this as well. Not much happens here except for the fact that one of the uh, that. In, in investigating, she's hired. She's given five hundred thousand uh, dollars by the by this mechanical sort of robot called the Executor to find the the ten beneficiaries or the ten children of the Penguin. It ends up ultimately that they're all dead. And what ha- happens in the, in this issue is, well, I shouldn't I shouldn't jump ahead of myself. While they're not all dead, uh, Ethan Culpepot is ends up being killed by some attackers, and he's one of the children of. Ethan Cobblepot is one of the children of the Penguin, and he was even in the pages of Batgirl, and of course, now, now he's dead. But in any event, uh, there's these two other characters, uh, Addison and Aiden Cobblepot, who appear to have possibly orchestrated uh, the 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 killing of their their half-siblings, uh, particular uh, Ethan Cobblepot. And they're very upset, uh, particularly uh, Addison Cobblepot is very upset to learn that the only thing that they inherited was the Iceberg Lounge and a bunch of properties. They actually wanted the cash too, but there's like $10.5 million cash that that the that the Penguin uh, gave to some bird sanctuary, <laughs> I said, ch- a charitable bird sanctuary. In any event, um, Catwoman right away suspects that, uh, recognizes that this Aiden Cobblepot was wearing the same cufflink as the person who attacked her and killed Ethan Cobblepot earlier in the issue. And so, she, and she wants to, uh, she wants to find that the wives of the beneficiaries. So maybe all the Cobblepots, the children are dead. Most of them, you know, if they're, if they've been killed or missing, she wants to go and find the wives and to see, you know, and just, she wants all these other addresses because she wants to make sure that if they've been murdered or something, they want she wants the families of the, of the people to benefit uh, from the inheritance if it's if it's at all possible. Meanwhile, the executor has a job to do and he only does his one job. And once his job is done, it's complete. He's over. He's finished. But uh, Wonder Woman, or pardon me, Wonder Woman, Catwoman now is on the hunt. She's she's angry. She's frustrated. Uh, she doesn't like that. She suspects Addison and Aiden Aiden Cobblepot to be schemers who have perhaps orchestrated the murder of all their siblings in hopes of getting maximizing their inheritance. We'll have to see what comes of that. But all in all, uh, Trip Sardaski is doing a pretty good job here. And, you know, I got to give this, I would give this, both these stories, I would give the Batman story a solid, uh, a solid eight and a half out of 10. And I would give this Catwoman story a solid seven and a half. So 
all in all, pretty good for Chip, Chip Sardaski. He's doing a he's doing a decent job. All right, next issue, uh, next comic we're reviewing is the new champion of Shazam issue one. Now, this is uh, Jose uh, J- Josie Campbell. Uh, Josie Campbell is the writer, and Doc Ock, <laughs> Doc Ock, Doc Shock Shainer is the artist. Art on this issue is is fantastic. The cover is great. I've always had, you know, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Mary Marvel, but it's one of those things where, quite frankly, she's not a very common character. You don't really see Mary Marvel around very much, you know. Uh, and I should say here that we got uh, we got a Joshua Middleton cover. It's just absolutely gorgeous. We got the cover A, which is by uh, uh, Doc Shainer. We got uh, cover B, which is by Joshua Middleton. And we have a uh, we have a cover C by uh, I think I think that's Gary Frank. It looks like Gary Frank and uh, Brad Anderson uh, cover C. That's probably a one in twenty five, unfortunately. But it's it's gorgeous. It's it shows it's a beautiful picture. It's, it shows uh, Mary Marvel giving a high five to. Uh, <laughs> it, it looks like uh, it looks like that Marvel character, but it's not. It's actually. Uh, it's actually the character, it's the young black character, Darla. It looks like, yeah, that's what it is. She's giving Darla a high five, who is another member of the Marvel family. But so, you know, straight up, this is, you don't need to know nothing about Mary Marvel to get a kick out of this issue. All right. Now this issue, it's very straightforward. This is Mary Marvel. She's off. This is, you know, um, Mary is off to college. She's uh, Mary Bromfield, Mary Bromfield, who is an orphan. She lives with an orphan family and Billy Batson was uh, also an orphan living in the same family. And they all, they were all members and they, they were all, they all were part of the Marvel family. In other words, think of the Shazam movie. That's really what this is. You could tell this is based largely on that. This is really sort of reformatting whatever the history is of the DC universe in terms of the Marvel family. You can kind of forget about it. This is really, this really seems to me to be using what I, I would consider to be almost like the movie, uh, the, the movie background is all you need to know. She's an orphan and now she's off to freshman college. And uh, she's got, uh, she discovers she's got uh, two roommates in college, uh, uh, Cassidy and Bianca. And when she gets to college, uh, after saying goodbye to her foster family, she gets to, she gets to college and she meets two, she meets her two roommates, Cassidy and Bianca, and she ends up meeting Hoppy, which is uh, the, the pet rabbit of Bianca. And jury, it's during orientation that uh, this rabbit, Hoppy, starts talking to Mary Marvel, starts talking to Mary, <laughs> and uh, who makes up her name as Miranda to her roommates, and ultimately tells her, gives her the message that Billy Batson wanted to give her, that Shazam left her. If you've been reading the the nonsense of the Shazam, the previous Shazam series, for issue series, which was an absolute gong show, I don't recommend you pick it up. Just avoid it. It, it, it's you won't understand what's going on. It's confusing. It's all over the place. Avoid Teen Titans Academy like the plague. Avoid Shazam like the plague. None of them are very well written. It'll just confuse you and make you not like the Shazam family. Trust me, avoid it. But I. Uh, but if you want to actually learn to love and enjoy Shazam, 
pick up this issue because it simplifies everything. And this is just all you need to know is that Shazam is off doing other things on the Rock of Eternity and somebody else needs to take care of, protect the Earth uh, from nefarious forces. And so Billy Batson basically through in, with through magical means speaks through this pet rabbit, Hoppy, to tell Mary Bromfield that you have the power of Shazam now. That's really what this is. That's really all you need to know. What really makes this work here is uh, J- Josie Campbell does a good job here with humor. Uh, I, I I thought that the dialogue between Mary Marvel, uh, Mary Marvel and her her two roommate friends Cassidy and Bianca, and uh, her moments of saying goodbye to her foster family, and there's a there's a actually a quiet sort of there's a quiet sort of sad moment where Darla is crying at one point. Darla's pretending to be sleeping because she's she's crying. She doesn't want to say goodbye to Mary because she'll miss her. There's some very touching moments in here. Oh, and they, they really hit home because of the great art of Doc Shaner. Really, very, very well done here. And you really, I got a really good sense of the emotion of the character, of the passion of the character, the, of the of the fact that Mary, she, she, she's excited. She, it's her first year of college. She's uh, sort of moving away from home. She's away from her, the orphanage or away from her, I guess, her family, right? And she wants to enjoy college. Unfortunately, because she, she, she can't do that to the extent that she wants because this talking rabbit, I mean, imagine, I mean, her roommate, this, her Bianca, her roommate Bianca's pet rabbit is talking to her and telling her she's got the power of Shazam. And there's a really funny scene where she's actually at orientation in an auditorium and she's talking to the rabbit and the rabbit finally kind of tells her, by the way, no one else can hear me. You're the only one that can hear me. And she realizes that, you know, people probably think she's crazy. And of course they do. They call her a weirdo. And it's a uh, doc. Shader does such a great job showing the embarrassment and the shock look on, on Mary Bromfield's face. It's very well done. This is funny. This is entertaining. This is good fun. This is absolutely a comic that can be picked up by anybody. It's all ages, but it's, it's not, it's, it's not, it doesn't insult uh, an adult's intelligence. It's not written for children. It's written for adults that children can enjoy or young adults that children can enjoy too. And that's exactly how a Shazam comic book should be written. And of course, you couldn't get a better artist for it than Doc Shaner. This is a really a really great melding of, of writer and artist. I think this is very well done. Uh, she ends up being called away <laughs> in order to fight this character called uh, Major... Is it uh, Major Disaster? No, disa- the Disaster Master. Uh, this guy's a piece of work to say the least. And of course, there's a fantastic page where she changes into changes into Mary Marvel. I guess you call her Shazam now. And he's the disaster master. And he tries to, you know, he tries to take her out. But she's got uh she doesn't have to share her power with five other people anymore. Her, so she she's mega powerful and uh, she easily dispatches uh, she easily dispatches this the this uh, disaster master <laughs> and uh yeah and that's really all that happens and then she ends up flying back to her home only to discover that her foster family is missing yeah she thought she was getting going to get she thought she was going to get in trouble for stealing her roommate's rabbit hoppy 
that's been talking to her throughout the entire issue. But it ends up her foster family is now missing. And so that's the central mystery. That's how it ends leading into the second issue. All in all, this was very well done. Josie Campbell, great job in the writing. Doc Trainer, great job. Another high recommend. This is a... This is an enjoyable week for DC Comics, guys. I I, I got to say, this is uh, there's been a few weeks in the past few, in the last month where DC's had uh, some downer weeks, but this is definitely one of the better ones. But uh, pick this up; it's it's well worth your time. Oh, all right, so the next comic book uh, to uh, review is Sword of Azrael, issue one of six. Now, full disclosure here. Um. Sort of Azrael number one. There's actually a comic to read prior to this one. There's actually two Azrael comic books out this week. Uh, there's Sort of Azrael, and uh, there's actually before that there's actually Sort of Azrael Dark Knight of the Soul number one, and this Sort of Azrael comes uh, actually is is the second one. And let me just uh, well let me just uh, let me do it this way here. I'm gonna basically show you the uh, I, I don't I, I, I question what whether it was wise for DC to have an Azrael comic book to be honest with you I, I I don't know of all the DC characters that I would have liked to to be given some love uh, I frankly I it's it's not something Azrael is not a character that I necessarily care to see. Oh, I'm just, wow, nothing like fruit punch with a little bit of vodka. It, it tastes really good. In any event, let's, uh, I want to, let's talk a little bit about um, Azrael. Okay, spit it here. Let's see. All right. Sort of Azrael, Dark Knight of the Soul, one shot. We'll deal with that first. All you need to know about this uh, Dark Knight of the Soul one shot is that Azrael ends up meeting uh, a, Azrael is a, a former member of the cult of St. Dumas, and he's a knight of the cult of St. Dumas, and he's had many adventures in, in that respect. And uh, what's, what's happened with Jean-Paul Valley, the Azrael, is he, they're now writing him as having uh, Dan Waters is essentially writing him as almost having two personalities. They, they, there's the there's the fanatical religious Azrael side, and then there's the Jean Paul Valley side who kind of wants to leave that life behind. And so it's it's almost like two personalities almost. It's kind of interesting that way. Uh, although I, I've never really saw it as you know, I never really saw them as having personalities, separate personalities before. Although it almost feels that way, but it isn't. It's more like a, two sides of a different coin here. But in any event, uh, what what ends up happening in in um, and again, in Dark Knight of the Soul, is he ends up meeting a poor fellow, which is this woman who is a descendant of a knight's the Knights Templar, and the Knights Templar in the DC universe, anyway. The sole reason for the existence of the Knights Templar was to destroy the Lazarus pits. That's why they existed, and I kind of I kind of like that. And in fact, I think I'm starting to answer my own question here. I like the fact that this this knight that we end up meeting uh, in is is actually, and again, um, boy, these uh, things are so long winded. I I think this could be like an eight page backup, but it's 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 much longer. In any event, 
this poor fellow, she is, uh, she looks gorgeous. I liked her design. And we've seen her before. We've actually seen her before in the pages of Batman Urban Legends. But I think they're taking some of that work out of Batman Urban Legends. And I get the feeling that they're just cramming it in here, which is probably a good thing. But essentially, she's she's a Knights Templar and it's her job to go around and she wants to kill and wipe out all the Lazarus pits. And what she does in this issue is that she actually wipes out an individual who's trying to create Lazarus resin. And if you've been, follow, if you've been following Task Force, Task Force Z, and if you've been reading and following multiple DC comics since Future State over the last year and a half, you know that Lazarus resin can revive the dead. And the and Lazarus resin, of course, is a byproduct of from the Lazarus pits. And poor fellow, this knight, she it's her job to basically kill, you know, destroy the Lazarus pits and kill anyone who wants to keep them, uh, who wants to keep those pits around. And that's ultimately what she does here. And uh, and uh, that's what she that's what she basically she would. She's willing to die for her cause. And at one point in this story, you know, because I'm just going to sum this up real quick. Azrael wants to, you know, she ends up uh, confronting Jean Valley, and then he's, he becomes Azrael. And then he wants to kill her because she's going to, because she killed these people that were guarding their Zara's pits. And she's willing to lay down her life for her cause. And she actually gets, she basically um, uh, becomes very much, Azrael respects her for doing that. She gains Azrael's respect because Azrael is somebody who's he's having a crisis of faith. And he's, you know, he's got a friend, he's he's a nurse in the hospital. He's kind of a nurse in a hospital and he's caring for a sick and dying man and and he's sort of having a crisis of faith and here he meets this poor fellow. Terrible name for a character, by the way. Stupid name for a character. Call her something else. But in any event, this poor fellow, this Knight Templar, has enough faith to give her life for a cause. But Azrael refuses to kill her because he's so impressed with her. And she ultimately decides she ends up disappearing. And and she basically says that, uh, you know, there are other Knights Templar like me scattered around the globe. Uh, do you think I'm, I'm not the only one? My descendants aren't the only one who uh, of the Templar Knights who managed to survive. Because, of course, in history, the rumor has it that all the Templar Knights were, were killed and exterminated and wiped out. And that's simply not true. And in any event, uh, this, this particular, uh, this one shot, this one shot uh, called uh, Sword of Israel, Dark Knight of the Soul, essentially ends with Jean Pal Valley sort of confronting the poor fellow, and you, we're seeing we're seeing the background of this poor fellow, this knight wanting to find all the Lazarus pits to destroy them, and I like that because we've had Lazarus resin, Lazarus pits, we've got the demon Nezha, and uh, you know, and, and Raza Gol and and Talia Gaul, and we got the importance of the Lazarus Pits is really something that's arisen in, uh, and gained prominence in the last year. And it's nice that this 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 Templar Knight, I like the Templar Knight angle. I think that's pretty cool. So, uh, all right. So now now we got to review sort of Azrael number one because that uh, Dark Knight uh, Dark Knight of the Soul was just sort of like the one shot leading into it. Now, sort of Azrael number one is uh involves involves Azrael saving the he he Azrael saving the life of a woman by the name of Brielle uh, Arnier 
who claims to hear the voice of God. And uh, now this is uh, this is quite interesting. Uh, uh, four covers for this, way too many covers for an for an for the Azrael character. But in this in this first issue, written by Dan Waters, uh, artist is Nicola says says Mazija says Mazija, colors by Marisa Louise, and um, uh, this takes place uh, on the Ludus Island, uh, on out of the Asian Sea where essentially Jean-Paul Valley has gone back to this island to sort of become a monk and try to reconnect with his faith. And while he's there, while he's there trying to reconnect to his faith, uh, he noticed that one of the one of the boats pulls up on the dock and this woman gets off named Braille Ornier and she claims to hear the voice of God and she's been called to the island and she, and the voice of God essentially told her to, to find Jean-Paul Valley. And... Um, and what's 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 very interesting here is, and I want to give a compliment to the to the letterer here, whoever the letterer is in this, uh, the letterer being uh, Hassan Atzmain Elhal. Uh, really good on the lettering because you could tell by the lettering that uh, there, there's a there's a one point where Jean Paul Valley. He's a monk and he's supposed to be nonviolent, but he ends up being protecting this girl from one of the uh, one of the men on the boat gets a little frisky with her, and you know he protects her and he he wants to protect her, but he decides not to fight. But there's the voice in his head, the Azrael voice in his head, talking about vengeance. I am Azrael, the avenging angel, but he refuses to listen to it. And you could tell he's having that struggle, that psychological struggle in his head, just by the different colors of the, uh, of the word balloon of the, I guess the, the captions and the different colors of the, uh, the dialogue. So I thought it was uh, very well done. It conveyed that struggle in fighters inside John Fowl Valley's head. Meanwhile, though, this woman's pretty screwed up. Her name's Brielle Arnier. And uh, somebody's killed everyone she's cared about. She's got a voice in her head telling her to find John Pell Valley. She thinks it's the voice of God. And uh, meanwhile, um, uh, Azrael is surprised by this. John Pell Valley is surprised by this. As far as he can tell, this woman has no connection to him. So he doesn't understand what's going on. He's very suspicious. And... Um, and he can't, he figures that she's a Looney Tune, which is kind of ironic because Jean Paul, Jean Paul himself is kind of a Looney Tune in a way. He's hearing, he hears voices all the time, it seems. And he's got almost this avenging angel, Azrael, talking to him in his head. So, but he thinks this woman's, Brielle's crazy. And it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny to be quite honest. And, uh, it, it, and, and it comes across that way. And at one point here, uh, Dan, writer Dan Waters actually summarizes the narrative journey and the origin of Azrael. And he talks about him originally fighting Bane and he uh, and becoming trying to redeem himself in the Batman family. He tries. He even he even there was even a, a series uh, called uh, Arkham Map of the World or whatever. Uh, there was a series that just ended that, that Dan Waters just did where Azrael was in it, where he tried to, uh, uh, tried to 
try to take out various members of Arkham Asylum. He so he, he references his own series. What he doesn't reference is Azrael as a member of Justice League Odyssey, which I think there was plenty of room on the page to reference it uh, artistically, but it wasn't rendered. I think that's a miss. You should have referenced it because uh, him as a I mean he was Azrael actually became a worshipped deity, a god uh, in the Dark Sector. Uh, of 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 Justice League Odyssey, which was I thought was a an excellent. Well, it actually was the best Justice League series consistently overall out of all of them at the time. But you never know with the DC Omniverse what exists and what doesn't anymore. I know everything matters, but that doesn't really tell me anything other than the fact that it's more likely than not that nothing matters. But mm. in any event, I got to tell you, when you talk as much as I do doing this, sipping a drink is that's that's a nice reprieve. In any event, uh, what uh, what ends up uh, happening? Uh, what ends up happening is vengeance. Dot Bane shows up, which is kind of cool because we know Azrael's got a history with Bane. Vengeance shows up, wanting the girl, but she wants to actually protect Brielle because she says that they want to protect Brielle because they want to bring her in safely because. Uh, Vengeance is on a crusade to protect her, to help rebuild the Knights Templar. Now, what's really cool about that is that we already met Sorrow. We are we had, we had already met uh, the uh, a female knight uh, in the last in the last Azrael issue. Who? Uh, what the hell's her name? Sorrow again? Or uh, oh, poor fellow? God, I forget that name. We met the Knight Templar, the Templar Knight. A poor fellow who uh, was talking about others like her, and this Brielle is apparently a member of the uh, is a potential. Uh, they they need her to rebuild the Knights Templar, but before they can do that, as Vengeance is saying this, Brielle suddenly uh, suddenly manifests as the angel Sariel, and she sort of transforms herself, and she says that Azrael is not the angel I was looking for. She dwells within me. And and this Brielle seems grabs the flaming sword that normally Azrael has, and she becomes the angel Sariel, Sariel, and she's there to cleanse the world in blood. And so, not really sure what's going on, but it's interesting. I like the Templar Knights. I like what does it have to do with Saint Dumas? Is there going to be a connection to the Lazarus Pits? Are we going to see the poor fellow character come back? I like I like the sort of mythology that Dan Waters is building here. And I really enjoy the art as well, the art of Sesmosija. Uh, and I, I'm so, so sorry I'm butchering those names. But again, you know, even though I wasn't really asking for an Azrael series, I got to admit, this is a story that interests me. I like this. This is interesting, and I, I hope it goes in an interesting direction. It's starting off in a way that I find interesting, and I hope it continues to go that way. The idea of more Knights Templar, we got the, uh, we got the cult of St. Dumas with Azrael, having more Knights Templar with the goal of destroying all the Lazarus pits. We we have Razogol in the Lazarus pits, Talia. We got the demon Nezha. We got a new D, uh, DC mythology slowly building here, and I like it. I like it. Things are building to a head, and... I, I hope they continue to do so. All right, continuing on. Uh, the next one, we have uh, Multiversity Teen Justice Issue 3. I have, um, I got to tell you, there, there's a, there, nice covers on this one. I got to I gotta say, uh, 
We got Raven. We got the male character of Raven and his boyfriend is Don Troy. <laughs> Sorry. Or Troy or, or or not Don or Troy. It's just Troy, I think. Anyways, um, I'm, I'm so I'm 53 years old. Okay. And so I have this thing where back in the eighties, there was an expression. I'd say that's so gay, but it didn't really mean what it means today. You know, it was just gay just meant like, I felt, thought it was like dumb. If I said something was gay, I mean, it was just dumb. And I'm so old school that when I actually look at this picture of Don Troy or Troy or whatever his character is, I think that looks so gay. <laughs> but, and I mean that, and I just think it looks foolish. But anyways, this actually is a gay character, I think, or, or in any event, it's a yeah, bad joke. In any event, uh, I, I'm going to give full props here to uh, Ivan Cohen and uh, Ivan Cohen is uh, I wasn't I I felt that writer Ivan Cohen was sort of biting off more than he could chew a little bit in terms of weaving all these characters together. I thought it actually came together quite well, this issue. And I think the art, this is the best I've seen the art in many issues. I got to give uh, full props here. Ivan Cohen and Danny Lore. Good job on the writing on this one. Art by Luciano Vecchio. I quite enjoyed it. Colors by Erica, uh, er, Enrica Aaron Angioni. And letters by Carlos M. Magod. Some of the art here, uh, some of the pages here are just incredible. I really, really well done. I, you know, I'm always torn because sometimes when you're building a new universe, when you're, because this is, this takes place on, and on Earth 11, where the genders are flipped. And it, to me, it's always a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, I'm a little bit of a hypocrite, and I can be very hard as a reader. On the one hand, I don't want to be spoon-fed something. On the other hand, I don't want to be left in the dark. And at the same time, I don't want my intelligence insulted. And quite frankly, Ivan Cohen and Danny Lohr, they're doing a, they, they are doing a job. Despite my impatience early on, that I thought maybe they were sort of shoehorning too much at us at once. I don't feel that way anymore because only because I'm getting, maybe it's just me. I had to get used to the pacing here, but I think this is actually kind of fun. <laughs> this is, they're definitely, they're weaving, they're picking all kinds of different, weird and different ideas for this earth 11. And frankly, that's what you're supposed to do because it doesn't have, the good thing about it is you, it doesn't have to be the same as the mainstream DC universe, nor should it be, nor good Lord as a reader, why would I want it to be? I want it to be different. And I like discovering what those differences are as I read the story. And that's what's happening here. So thank you, Dan, Danny Lore and Ivan Cohen. I'm enjoying this. Uh, now, I'll, what one thing about this is that for, uh, for the price that you're for three ninety nine. You're getting a lot, a lot of story here, a lot of dialogue, a lot of story. And uh, my particular, uh, my favorite aspects of this story have to do with the Green Lantern lore and the Green Lantern mythology. Uh, it's an interesting flip on the Star Sapphires and on Hal Jordan and on how the Star Sapphires are trying to unite, trying to have love overcome fear and to unite all the, uh, the emotional, all the members of the, all the various cores of the emotional spectrum, the, the, the Sinestro core, Green Lantern core, Red Lanterns, uh, the Indigo, uh, Hope, et cetera, et cetera, all the, all that jazz. They're trying to, trying to unite all of those. And it's rather unfortunate. Aqua girl ends up looking for, uh, ends up in, in her searches in this issue, 
because we know that Sinestra is sort of like the bat, the, the main villain on Earth Eleven, and Sinestra, uh, the the biggest enemy, the, <clears throat> the biggest enemy against the Star Sapphire's desire to unite all the core are actually the Green Lanterns, uh, which are led by Sinestra and Hal Jordan. Fell, falls in love with Star Sapphire and ultimately ends up uh, being part of what betrays his betrayal uh, of his core in favor of of uh, Carol Ferris. So I guess it's Hal Ferris. There's a different play on things here. How they how they uh, <laughs> I I I don't want to I don't want to delay too much in this review because it's. Uh, there's a lot to review. Suffice to say, um, I think it's I think it's not Hal Jordan, it's Hal Ferris. But in any event, it's there's a lot of rich history here, and I actually kind of like the fact that Ivan Cohen and Danny Danny Lohr, they're not spending a huge amount of time. They're, they're giving you the bullet points. They're just giving the reader what you need to know to to move the story forward, and that's what I like. I mean, you're getting good bang for your buck, and for three ninety nine, I like that. And the art here is really good. Um, and, uh, the Green Lantern Corps, I kind of like the fact of the Green Lantern Corps. They look different. They kind of look like, I mean, they're the, they're the angels. They're the, they're the jerks and the bad guys of the story. And Sinestra, she just looks awesome. I mean, she, she just looks, she looks badass. And, and I like it. And this is, uh, and, uh, the, the art, the, the clean, crisp, pure lines, the coloring, everything is bang on. Again, I'm enjoying this. And I don't know how uh, this is a limited series. I don't know how long it's going to go on for, but I imagine it's going to go six issues. And I think I'm I'm going to be picking it up. I'll be honest with you. I, I gave it two issues that I didn't think I'd be picking up the third, but I'm going to be picking up the third issue of this. And I think I might finish this series. This to me is what Teen Titans Academy ought to have been. This is the new sort of like, for me, this is almost like the new Teen Titans for me. I'm enjoying this. And you know, I hope it keeps getting better. So kudos to Ivan Cohen and Danny Lohr, man. You know, I uh, I, I will happily say when things, uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I was not expecting uh, to, to enjoy this as much as I did. So good on them. So, all right. So next issue, Poison Ivy. Well, <laughs> third issue of Poison Ivy, uh, Jay Willow Wilson. Now, this one, I, I have to tell you, the cover here says it all. Happier than ever. This is, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure. J. Willow Wilson, uh, this, is a, th this is a comic book that uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly who Ivy is supposed to be. And so I, I'm, I got sort of mixed feelings on everything here, meaning that I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if um, J. Willow Wilson isn't clear in terms of how she wants to script Ivy, Poison Ivy. On the other hand, maybe she knows exactly what she's doing because the character doesn't seem to know what she is either. And as a reader, uh, we've gotten so many sort of different iterations of Poison Ivy over the last five years. I'm not even sure DC knows what iteration of poison ivy they want the readers to sort of migrate to is she a villain is she a good person i don't know i actually think uh the more i reflected on it here that i i 
I was a little bit worried when this started. I'm, I was curious, like, what direction is this going in? But it seems to me that uh, what Jay Willow Wilson is doing here is that this really is, uh, uh, it's clear here that Poison Ivy uh, is, uh, she really is, she wants to be a plant. She, it's almost like she is, she, she almost reminds me of old Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and that she's, she's a, uh, she's a plant that thinks she's human or she, she's a, she's a human, she, or she's a human that wants to be a plant, you know? And, uh, <laughs> I should, I should give a shout out here. This is actually swimsuit variant month. So if you, if you go to your comic shop, you, you'll notice that there's going to be, uh, if you, if you're into, uh, theme related variant covers, there's a swimsuit variant cover month and poison Ivy has a swimsuit variant issue this month, as well as Harley Quinn, which we'll be getting to and various other, uh, comic books for DC. And I think that's going to go for a month or two, but in any event, uh, we got like, good Lord, there's five covers for poison Ivy number three. And so, yeah, uh, Pardon me, there's six covers for Poison Ivy number three. Wow, they're all nice. I mean, whatever floats your boat. But, you know, this uh, this issue sort of follows a common theme that we already saw in the second issue, and that is it's just it's Poison Ivy dreaming that she, she's fantasizing and having a psychosexual fantasy of Harley Quinn again. And she, and the essence of it is that Poison Ivy, she's dying She's slowly dying from the spores that are killing her and what she wants to do. Poison Ivy wants to travel around the world and infect just a certain amount, just enough humans with the spores so that it will wipe out humanity. But you got to, there's a certain inflection point, apparently, when you infect a certain group of people, you got to inflect, infect so many. And if you infect so many, you're guaranteed to wipe them all out. And so that's what she wants to do. She wants to infect just the right amount of humans. And then she, when she dies, it don't matter because everyone's going to be wiped out and it'll be for the betterment of humanity uh, or the betterment of the plant life. And somehow, I don't know, somehow she's going to save Ivy or pardon me, somehow she's going to save Harley Quinn. She loves Harley Quinn, so I'm not really sure how this is helping Harley. It's not quite clear. Uh, you know, I, in fact, I think even Poison Ivy herself sort of is conflicted with that. And meanwhile, she's staying at a hotel, and she's staying at a hotel where very conveniently the owner of the hotel is putting plants, planting grass and different flowers in the backyard, asks Ivy for help, and so Ivy helps her. And, and as Ivy is helping her, she's having visions of, of the gardener, uh, which is another one of her past lovers that we met in fear state. And, uh, and she's having, you know, visions of, of all the bad things that she's done in the past. And, and, and yet, and that this is juxtaposed against images of, of Pamela Isley, you know, being, feeling so good and feel so good to work and do some yard work and plant plant flowers and you know she's got such it's almost like she's got a normal life and and it's and if you're if you're not careful as a reader you'll forget that this is actually kind of a psychopath this is a woman that wants to infect humanity and wipe the entire earth out so it's really weird it's really odd that's a very very jarring <laughs> you know deflection of character i mean we got very two different 
poison ivies here. Uh, and But yet that's what she does. She's very happy. And the narration is quite clear that she's, you know, while she spends a lot, I spend, a, she even says, I spend a lot of time contemplating murder, but what I really love is buying plants. I mean, that's, that's, that's an exact quote. It's like, yeah, that's definitely somebody who needs some significant help. And beautiful art here. I mean, I want to give full props again to the art by, uh, 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 beautiful art by uh, uh, Mario Takara and Arif Prianto on the colors. Just really beautiful when she's, it shows a scene where she's planting a tree and it shows the, the root system with the rabbits under the ground and the mushrooms and, and all the different types of spores and plant life, which are part, which you would expect, I guess, in a Poison Ivy comic. Uh, but yet at the same time, it's not something that she doesn't seem to have control over anything. And, and at one point in the hotel room, she's even attacked by what looks to be like an evil plant-like creature. But then we're not sure if it's all taken place in her head or did it actually really happen. And then ultimately she leaves and uh, she leaves and and as she leaves, the this girl who works at the hotel goes into the yard where they where they did all the plant planting, and the tree that was planted is now a huge tree. And in, in twenty four hours, the next morning, it's a huge tree, and it ends. You know, it's very shocking, and and Ivy just goes on her way. So, what movement did we have on the, on the actual central thrust of the narrative? We didn't get any movement. Uh, all we know is that, you know, it hints. At one point, Pamela Isley says, Ivy says to herself, uh, she entertains the possibility that she created something that she no longer has control over. And I think that's probably what's going to happen. I suspect that the spores that have mingled with Poison Ivy's own bio body chemistry that she's released are probably a greater threat than even she imagined them to be. And even though... I don't know. You know how you know how these things always flip. Even though she technically wants to destroy all of humanity except Harley Quinn, she's probably going to end up trying to in order she'll it'll probably be her love for Harley that will prompt her to save it because whatever she created probably will want to kill Harley too and that will force her to undo what she did all because of her love for Harley. So it'll probably end with her being just as psychotic as ever, but her love for Harley will ultimately cause her to change her mind and save the day. That's my wild guess. And in the meantime, we're going to be getting some beautiful art by Takara and some beautiful colors by Prianto, as Jay Willow Wilson tells and completes this story. But we're only three issues in, and uh, we'll see how it goes, uh, continues to go on from there. All right. So, all right, so the next issue we are going to be reviewing is Dark Crisis, number three of seven. Wow. Um, well, guys, uh, as I'm sure that you heard all the uh, San Diego Comic-Con news, we we know that uh, this is actually Dark Crisis on Infinite Earths. There's actually going to be a title change. Now, uh, if there is a new title for this, a new cover page for this, I've not seen it. Uh, or, or I just missed it online. Maybe it's online and I just missed it. I'm sure it's been online. But uh, one thing I want to draw your attention to is that we actually get a new character this issue. Uh, we get the, we get we get one panel of a new character. We see the eye patch of this new character. She's on cover B, and that is the Red Canary. And within the pages of within the pages 
of uh, I'm gonna sorry about this. I didn't show it. Uh, it's the red canary, and I believe this is actually Sin, the adopted daughter of Black Canary, and beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, costume design uh, for a red canary, and that's for the five ninety nine cover, the cardstock cover, and uh, and yet we only see what I believe is a, an eye image. Uh, we see the we see the mask. We see the the left side of her face as she puts on a mask in this issue because this issue, uh, the world is uh, dealing with the loss of the Justice League. John Kent put together a ridiculous Justice League group last issue with Killer Frost, Harley Quinn, Frankenstein, just a just a Hodge Booster Gold and and Blue Beetle. It was just an embarrassing eclectic array of characters for the Justice League. Uh, Supergirl with, I mean, Supergirl with actually tights on. I mean, he's just, just, just really an embarrassing display. Uh, but what, but they did hold their own pretty good on Titan's Tower, and they managed to hold off uh, Deathstroke's forces, I think, reasonably well. And it was, uh, it, it wasn't bad. Uh, but the world is uh, kind of depressed. The world's all upset. And of course, opening this issue, Donna Troy's upset. Nightwing's upset. Gar's in the hospital. He was shot in the head. Unfortunately, I'm, I'm sad to report Beast Boy isn't actually dead. I mean, in other words, so far, there's been zero consequences to this crisis. I mean, no one's actually died. No one's of consequences died. I just, I got to shake my head, man. You need death in a crisis. I mean, I. Uh, we're not even going to get a flash that dies. Come on. Uh, <laughs> having said that, I actually, I've been enjoying this series. I have. I want, I want to get to Joshua Williamson. I've been enjoying his Robin. I enjoyed his Deathstroke. And uh, hey, this uh, Dark Crisis, this issue is actually pretty damn, uh, it's pretty damn good. Uh, now, I've been liking this for a long time. Uh, there's even a reference here between Red Hood and Roy, Roy Harper where Red Hood tells him we're going to find Leon for We're going to find Leon because we know Roy Har Harper's looking for his daughter. We know she's actually Cheshire Cat. Uh, that's the daughter of Roy Harper and Cheshire. And she's actually Cheshire Cat in, uh, in uh, Gotham City. And... Uh, this issue here has uh, Black Adam, you know, not really impressed. He's telling guys, you know, we we have we have Deathstroke's forces, Deathstroke and the Secret Society villains. They're they're go they're they're popping up. The the supervillain known as Warp is teleporting the supervillains in and out of various places all over the globe. They're causing chaos, and the heroes are not enough to stop them. Black Adam wants to take them out. Black Adam would prefer to use lethal force. He he would you know if, if Black Adam has his way, he would rip their heads off and put them on spikes and and and, and basically make a pretty good show of it. And there's a great scene in the Hall of Justice where Damien is talking down Black Adam, but Black Adam is basically telling him how he feels. Uh, but, you know, Superboy, you know, John Kent does, I call him Superboy, I'm sorry. Superman, you know, holds his own well against Black Adam, even intimidates Black Adam a little bit with showing him heat vision in his eyes, telling him to stop. Yara Floor, inner Yara Floor uh, holds her own against Black Adam, isn't intimidated by him either. So these are good moments for John Kent, good moments for Yara Floor. I thought that was handled really well. These are characters that need some gravitas, that need some good moments, because they frankly haven't really gotten any. They haven't really... Superman, son of Kal-El, I'm sorry, you haven't really... Sean, you haven't really done very well in your own comic book. You haven't really had any moments where you've really shone, at least not in my mind. 
and Yara Floor, you, you you were terrible in your comic book. You basically you were you were up you were shown up by your own by wonder by Cassie Sandsmark. You're an embarrassment in your own comic book. So it's nice to see that Yara Floor here could at least step up to the plate and did something actually useful with that rope uh, <laughs> by uh, you know holding back Black Adam. And so it's nice to see that because these characters really do need some justice done to their uh, portrayals and. As they're leaving the Hall of Justice, Damien and John Kent are upset. They're angry with each other. They're arguing. And, uh, you know, uh, and John Kent says to Damien, you know, you, you know, we need hope right now. I can't believe you right now that you're giving up on the Justice League because Damien wants to give up too. Damien's frustrated. Batman's gone. His dad's dead. Uh, hope is got lost. And uh, fortunately, lo and behold, the Justice Society of America shows up. And says, hey, no problem. You should have called us first. You know, I mean, we're right here, guys. It's all good. So the Justice Society is there. Meanwhile, we know we know that Deathstroke's still around. And and what, what's quite apparent is Deathstroke is possessed by the great darkness. He his own daughter, Ravager, is there to try to turn him, to try to uh talk to him but she knows she can't reach him and he basically just explodes with this great darkness and he seems to whatever is infected deathstroke the great darkness has been talking to him and uh causing him to 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 do the the things that he's doing so all the machinations of deathstroke have been have been at the behest of the the great darkness and i suspect it's been the great darkness that's been talking to him not necessarily pariah Pariah only thinks he's in charge of the great darkness. Pariah naively believes that he can control the great darkness. But as Hal Jordan finds out in this issue, Pariah is wrong. And that's what's, that's what's uh, interesting about this. So as, uh, uh, as we meet up with Hal Jordan, Kyle Rayner, Joe Milone, and the rest of the uh, Green Lantern Corps, they're approaching in Sector 666 Ryut. They're approaching the Black Lantern, where essentially they know that they, they sense that the great darkness or something is, is inside the dark, this uh, Black Lantern power battery. Kyle Rayner, uh, Hal Jordan, Joe Milone all go into the Black Power battery where they are confronted by Pariah. And Pariah basically tells him that this was all, you know, all the heroes are dead, but we, we basically were utilizing them. Uh, you know, we, we know essentially it's confirmed. I mean, we know that they're on their own worlds. And so the heroes are kind of alive, but in a world where they're sort of fulfilling their, their heart's desire in a world of their own imaginings. But Pariah thinks that they're there to help empower and bring back the multiverse. But as Hal Jordan ends up, ultimately being defeated and suffering the same fate as the Justice League, he basically, he ends up finding himself coming back. And while Hal Jordan is, finds himself being uh, destroyed as well, when he comes back, I mean, he, he discovers that the Great Darkness is not using the Justice League to restore the multiverse. Rather, it's using them to turn them into weapons. And so the great darkness is utilizing the power of the Justice League or their, their, their essence to uh, create a weapon to probably destroy the multiverse and perhaps more than one multiverse, which is something that needs to be stopped. Uh, Hell Jordan ends up suffering the same fate as the Justice League for only him to come back. And he ends up at this new sector where presumably he is, he is now with this essentially ends with him confronting other Green Lantern in what might be his dream come true, uh, 
or his world without a Green Lantern, or in this case, a world with many Green Lanterns, which is maybe one of Hal Jordan's uh, ultimate dreams of having the perfect sort of Green Lantern core. And it wouldn't be complete this issue without uh, Black Adam showing up at the end where Black Adam, in his mind, the Justice League is a fail. The, the Justice League is dead. The new Justice League under John Kent is an abject failure because of what happened at Titan's Tower. And he tries to recruit Lex Luthor and the Legion of Doom and, and uh, Black Adam. Uh, you know, next issue teases to be Deathstroke versus the Legion of Doom. And so this is pretty good because we got Punchline, Black Manta, Lex Luthor, Vandal Savage, Gorilla Grodd, uh, Scarecrow, uh, Killer Frost, or par- pardon me, uh, Mr. F- <laughs> uh, Mr. Freeze, not Mr. Freeze. Uh, 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 what the hell? I don't, actually, I'm not even sure who some of these characters are. There's Cheetah, and there's Sinestro, and... Oh, there's a whole slew in there. But anyways, um, all in all, pretty damn good. And the art here, I mean, Daniel Samper and the art, fantastic. I mean, the art here is really good. Uh, full props here. I mean, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, I'm, I'm, I continue to enjoy this series. I still think, I, I wish it was a little bit faster. No one's really talking about this. I know that no one really seems to, seems like no one really seems to care. I do. I love DC. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> but it may, I, I feel like I'm a little bit of an outlier sometimes on this topic. Uh, I, I said, I'll tell you point blank. I'm, I don't care that, you know, calling it Dark Crisis on on Infinite Earths, call, changing the title, I think is, I, I don't see how that's going to help this at all. Uh, I don't need the title change. I'm, I'm enjoying the story r- regardless. But if they want to... You know, if it if it brings more people into the title to read it, to give it a shot, great. I mean, pull more people in to give it more advertising, more marketing. Maybe they should have done that in the first place. I don't know, but I'm enjoying this, and I hope people give this uh, give this issue a shot because it's pretty damn good. All right, okay. So now, uh, next comic is Black Adam: The Justice Society Cyclone Number One. Well, I got got to tell you. All right. Now, this is a series of comic books that deals specifically with, uh, it's tied into the, as prequels to the Black Adam, uh, Black Adam movie. And one thing about this particular issue is, uh, you know, I'm not familiar with the character of Cyclone in the Justice Society. Uh, I, I, this character, as far as I'm aware, was created exclusively for the movie this character, I don't, I don't remember this character being in the Justice Society, or if it is, I'm not very familiar with it, to be honest with you. I'm, um, uh, but I, having said that, this is very much uh, of a, an origin story, so this is a very easy read. I will say that this is this this did feel very, uh, very kind of tropey and kind of predictable, but you know, writer Kevin Scott. Uh, along with artist Maria Sanapo. Great art. I really like the art, and we'll get into that. Erif Prianto on the colors. This was, uh, this was, this was pretty good. And, and the backup, I thought, was pretty good. It continues the story of uh, Adriana, who is going to be the love interest of Black Adam in the movie. And it, uh, it's very well done. 
I just want to, uh, I'll show you some of the pictures here. We got the main cover and then we actually have like a photo cover of the, the actress that plays Cyclone. She's very attractive. She looks, she looks amazing. Great costume. I'm really curious to see how they, we got some hints of the special effects and that she uses in the Black Adam movie trailer. So I would encourage everyone to check out the San Diego Comic-Con Black Adam movie trailer, uh, uh, actor uh, Dwayne Johnson did a really good job uh, promoting that. He's doing the best he can. He wants. I just you know, Black Adam is, isn't isn't a well known DC uh, character, and the, the the mainstream. I guess the I guess the normies out there that don't read comic books they don't know a lot about Black Adam. So I'm 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 hoping that uh, uh, that the the movie will do better than what. Um, some have suggested it would, but in any event, we got to, uh, this is, uh, in this particular issue, this really just gives us a very straightforward, uh, origin story. This is a, uh, Maxine Hunkel is this young girl. She's a young teenage girl who is Cyclone. Maxine Hunkel, uh, she was, we just, we, we are told that she's someone that always respected and admired the justice society. So we know that this is a world who, that, that, really like the Justice Society. The Justice Society, uh, they remember the Justice Society. And there's really no mention of Superman or Wonder Woman or anyone else, but we, it, they certainly know Hawkman. This world is definitely a world that knows Hawkman. Uh, Maxine Hunkel knows Hawkman. She knows the, she knows uh, the Justice Society. And we're just told right off the bat that she has nanites in her system, and, but we're not told what her powers are. So she just has nanites in her system. That's all we're told. And we don't find out what her powers are. We're shown what her powers are. She doesn't even talk about her powers. She just goes and she, right in the middle of, uh, she's basically just wandering down the street. And then all of a sudden we see this guy named, uh, I think his name is, uh, his name's not even important. He's a guy who suddenly, uh, he's taken a drug called tar. And there, there's an illegal street drug called tar, T-A-R, that gives people superpowers if you take it. And this guy is, uh, I guess, is, is addicted to it. And he starts creating chaos in the streets. And she has to go and Maxine Hunkel has to go and she uses her powers to basically incapacitate this guy. And it's really one long, one long fight scene. Again, beautiful art by uh, Maria Sanapo and Eric Prianto on the colors. Just really pop off the page. Very well done. Very well done. And, you know, it's a good introduction to this character if you know nothing about her. I know nothing about her. Now, I will say just a minor little nitpick. I would have liked to have had I would have liked to have gotten a little bit more of a hint as to how did how do nanites in your blood give you cyclone powers? I mean, how does she have power over the weather to create a cyclone? How does giving you nanites in your body can body give you that superpower? I don't understand that. Again, that's just the, the the comic book reader in me, you know. I like to, I like, I usually like a connection between the between the uh, mutant freakish nature of a body versus and, and a superpower, right? I mean, if you have heat vision, I get that you got heat heat blast lasers coming out of your eyes, but if you've got nanites in your blood, I don't know how that translates into creating a cyclone. But you know, that's just me. Um, but you know, suspension of disbelief and all that jazz, right? But. Uh, you know, again, this this character is uh, the the story here is that the person who uh, she defeats this this character who uh, this I think his name is Isaiah. He has this uh, 
he has this who overdoses on tar and he uses his powers to create havoc in the streets. This detect there's there's a corrupt cop who's selling drugs and uh, Maxine ultimately ends up confronting this corrupt cop, this detective King. And uh, in, she tries to stop him and uh, he ends up trying to escape. Detective King takes the drug to try to beat up Maxine Hunkel. And of course she uses her cyclone powers and, but it's not quite enough to defeat him, but she has suddenly Hawkman shows up and he helps her out. And again, Hawkman looks incredible. He looks amazing. I actually love the design of this Hawkman better than, frankly, well, it's certainly competitive with the, the mainstream DC Universe Hawkman. This is actually a really cool looking Hawkman with the red and the gold and the white. Looks really good, I got to say. It's going to look, and I know it looks amazing on this big screen as well, at least from the previews. So I, I like that aspect of it. And uh, he basically asks her to join the Justice Society. He to basically asks her to join. So we know that this tells us already that probably in the movie, we already are going to have it where Cyclone is a member of the Justice Society already. But this is sort of like, this is sort of like her origin of how when she first met Hawkman. And uh, yeah, and it works. So I, I, I can't complain. And it's not bad. You know, again, it's it's relatively straightforward. But at the same time, this, since this is a relatively new character, uh, let's face it, we're going to have to be maybe you know, spoon fed this a little bit. Cause they're not going to, they're not going to make this a series. So they're giving as much as they can into a one shot. Now the backup feature here, uh, we, we get more, what appears to be, I think, um, backstory into black Adam when he was a slave in Kandak thousands of years ago, where essentially, uh, this is Lost and Found, Chapter 204. Uh, it's written by Brian Q. Miller is the writer. Mar uh, Marcio, uh, Marco Santucci is on the art. Michael uh, Atei does the colors. Rob Lee on the letters. And uh, this is what appears to be young Teth Adams stealing a knife. And he uses the knife to cut the whips of the masters who are whipping the slaves. And he does that defiantly. And then there's a flashback into the future where uh, Adriana and her assistant are holding up a an ornament of some kind that they have found made of eternium, and eternium is this new is this new metal is one of these metals that can create uh, has a very is a unique kind of energy, and yeah. Um, it can, it's a unique power source. And while they're studying this Eternium metal, which is on this artifact, they are attacked by agents of Intergang. And Intergang are the main bad guys in the Black Adam movie. So in the Black Adam trailer, when you see the, the jets flying beside Black Adam and when he's being attacked, you can assume those probably those are intergang members. And it's also fair to say that the, the, the fact that they're using this drug called tar, which gives people superhuman strength, this, this illegal drug, they're probably, uh, it's going to be used as a gimmick to give soup other people in the movie superpowers in order to give, uh, un unfortunately, I think it's a gimmick and I think it's really unfortunate. It's a cheap way. Instead of using existing DC heroes, if you're just going to use a cheap drug to give ordinary citizens superpowers and a drug called tar, that's really a cop out because you could, there are so many supervillains you could use in the DC universe in the movie. Why wouldn't you do that instead of just 
you know, again, maybe they're not going to do that, but why would they introduce a, a legal substance called tar that's going to give ordinary human superpowers temporarily and make them addicted to it unless you plan on doing it in the movie? I just, I think it's, I think it's kind of cheap and it's a cop out to be quite frank. I'd rather have them use actual DC supervillains as opposed to ordinary citizens taking a drug that was just made up uh, because a writer couldn't think of anything more creative by utilizing, um, uh, actual DC heroes. Uh, now that's a fault of Warner brothers, but then Warner brothers has all kinds of faults, but Dwayne Johnson proved me wrong, my friend. I hope, but uh, do we have any DC supervillains actually in actual DC supervillains other than intergang? And if all intergang is going to be is a bunch of intergang members on tar, that's a cop out. That really is. That's a sad, sad cop out. But I suspect that's what it's going to be, but hopefully the plot will otherwise be good. We'll have to wait and see. But, all right. All right, so the next comic book we have to review is Batman. Batman Beyond Neo Year. Okay, let me see. Okay, now, let's put this up on the screen. (coughs) Well, uh, I will say this: I um, Batman New Year Neo Year uh, number five. Uh, this is by Kelly and Lansing. This is a very sort of common creative team. I got to say that this is actually not as bad as I. You know, I, I'm not really a fan of Batman Beyond, so I, I wasn't expecting much. But this is actually, you know, I actually was worried that this is going to go off on a tangent that I wasn't really all that particularly fond of, but it actually, I I actually see this kind of wrapping up sooner rather than later. And and that's a good thing. I don't think that there's a, there's a lot of story to explore with, with Batman in the future with Batman beyond. I've never really been a fan of the concept. It's never really intrigued me. And so the fact that I'm actually, that Kelly and Lansing have managed to sort of pull me into this, this is actually kind of a, you know, props to them because I wouldn't have otherwise thought that they were capable of doing that. I didn't think any writer was capable of doing that because I've never been a fan of the character. But, you know, what's happened here is, uh, you know, Terry McGinnis, Batman Beyond, he ends up, basically the future, future Gotham is basically one giant computer. It's controlled by one giant computer program that killed the older Bruce Wayne and now is is basically controlling the crime rate, controlling the controlling everything. But the people of Gotham don't know they're being controlled, but they really are. They're being controlled, uh, but they don't know that. And even the crime rate, everything's sort of artificial. It, you know, the, the the computer can control everything, and and the sword of Gotham is is actually what the computer program is and the computer program can manifest itself as a villain as any citizen of Gotham and last in uh, last issue beam bo- uh bean beam boom what a name beam boonma <laughs> the uh <laughs> the reporter that Terry McGinnis spoke to she was actually taken over and she became the sword of Gotham uh because the sword of Gotham can be anybody because whenever the, the the city of Gotham City is sort of a living sentient being now, essentially, whenever it needs somebody to do its bidding, it can literally assume the body and kind of sort of like feed nanites and take over the body of any citizen of Gotham to become this powerful supervillain. 
uh, called the sword, collectively called the sword of Gotham. And so here we have Batman Beyond taking Beam uh, to uh, the old uh, Wayne Manor, where he is essentially confronting this um, gestalt. And this gestalt is this sort of, it's a combination of three humans combined with snake-like organic techno-organic creatures that sort of have their own sort of computer interface. And uh, they are capable of, um, they're capable of existing outside the mainframe of the sentient nature of Gotham City. And what they do is that they spend the next hundred days hiding from the sword of Gotham that is looking for them. So the sentiency of Gotham City is looking for Batman Beyond, but he's hidden in the Batcave with Gestalt, this three-pronged, tripart computer rogue system that is not detectable by the Sword of Gotham. And they're healing the body of Bean Booma that's been taken, that was initially infected by the Sword of Gotham. And it it takes about a hundred days for her body to heal. And it's, it's very interesting. And I want to, you know, full props to uh, Max Dunbar on the art here. He does a good job of showing this sort of like the computer nature, the matrix like existence of this future of Gotham. And so he does a good job there. And, uh, you know, I like the coloring. It's, 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 it's well done. I thought, you know, I, I I understand the the uh, the the setting that they're setting up here. It, I'm getting into it, and the the dialogue of Gestalt as Gestalt, this sort of like these three humans connected to this sort of like cobra-like snakes, computer computerized matrix entities are also they they have a vested interest in wanting to destroy the sort of Gotham as well. Although I'm not really sure why. I think it's, maybe it's because they just want to be their own independent computer program because they are they are their own kind of sentient life form. So it's kind of interesting that, that Terry McGinnis is actually partnering with one sentient, one form of sentient life to, to destroy another form of sentient life. So that's kind of interesting there because, you know, is at one point will Gestalt ever betray Terry McGinnis? Like, is he not, he's sort of, you know, it's I, I'm not. It's not clear to me that Gestalt is necessarily on the side of good, but he talked just Gestalt into working with him last issue, uh, or a couple of issues ago. And uh, uh, in any event, meanwhile, this uh, this uh, Mister what the hell's his name, Mister Lumos, is sort of like the bad guy, and he's you know he he's he's working with the sort of Gotham, and uh, he's you know he's the bad guy, and he wants to. Uh, you know, bad guy, evil machinations, corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Terry McGinnis uh, ultimately is hiding out after 100 days. You know, he's sitting there meditating and working out for 100 days in the bat cave, growing a beard, you know, looking all cool and manly and everything else. And he finally, you know, he checks out. He makes sure that uh, Beam is okay. And uh, she's all, she wants answers. And so, but you know, as they plan what they're going to do, they plan what they're going to do over a bottle of wine and and they uh, they come up with a master plan. And even though they don't really know what the hell it is yet, uh, at, the good news is, is that Gestalt has built a brand new suit 
for Terry McGinnis, and now he's ready to kick some ass, and this is to be concluded. So we got one issue to go. I believe this is only a six-issue series. It says to be concluded, and so I think that's uh, – so that's – we're going to lead to a big epic finale here, and I'm actually looking forward to see how it goes, and this was this was better than I, I thought it would be. So, again, I would give this out of 10. I would probably give this like a six-and-a-half out of 10. Uh, you know, the art was really good, and, you know, it was uh, serviceable. It doesn't blow me away, but it's not bad either. Okay. All right, next issue, we have Andromeda, Aquaman Andromeda, book two. Guys, I got to tell you that, you know, <laughs> all the uh, all the struggles that Aquaman, the Aquaman mythology has had in the DC universe, uh, this is so much better, this Aquaman Andromeda, that this is the best Aquaman story that I've read. Ram V has done such a good job here. Christian Ward's art's been fantastic. This is actually interesting. It's action-packed. There's drama. There's pathos. There's portrayal. There's horror. There's heroism. There's a little bit of absolutely everything. Uh, there's violence. There's action. And, um, you know, now, admittedly, this is uh, this is definitely... Not for the ill at heart. I mean, there's a, there's some uh, pretty graphic scenes here. Uh, but even the portrayal of Aquaman, Aquaman's portrayal here is here. He He's drawn like he's actually got like barnacles on. He's got sea life growing on him. He, this actually is, I mean, Christian Ward, the way he draws Aquaman, Arthur Curry here is amazing. Because he actually looks more like an Aquaman. Like you would expect someone who lives in the deep sea would look. You know, it almost reminds me where you can watch those YouTube videos where you see all those uh where those uh, heck, all those Mexicans going out in the ocean and rescuing sea turtles, and they're they're scraping barnacles off the turtles that uh, cake on the that get caked on the turtles over many years, and they rescue sea turtles when saving them by by tearing off all the sea barnacles. Well, this Aquaman actually has those on his skin, <laughs> or something to that effect. Anyways, it it. it uh, uh, I just like the work that Christian Ward's put into this. Now, story-wise, here this is uh, this feels that so much is at stake. Aquaman here, uh, ultimately, there's this. Uh, there's this. Uh, the United States government has sent some scientists down, uh, has sent their nuclear submarines, the U.S. submarines, down to check out what they think is a spaceship that's crashed in the Atlantic Ocean, and ultimately, Aquaman goes to check it out. And so does Black Manta. Black Manta's hired to go check it out. Now, Black Manta and Arthur Curry have history. Black Manta knows about Aquaman existing. But the main world in this particular universe, Aquaman is just a myth. They don't know about the Aquaman. And and what they discover is, is that this spaceship at the bottom of the ocean is actually an Atlantean prison. But it was a spaceship built by Atlanteans to cage sort of like a kraken creature to take this creature out and fly it off into space to, to, to protect it, to protect Atlanteans and to protect the Earth, to get this thing off the planet. And that was the reason. Uh, but something's gone wrong and this thing is still on the bottom of the uh, bottom of the ocean. And so it, while it was in space, it crashed back down into the ocean. So that's what's causing all this. And to make it even worse, this Kraken creature is, is, uh, has the impact or the, or, or the ability of driving the humans that are going 
to check out the spacecraft, it's driving the crews insane. So it's it almost has like that's where the horror element of this story comes into effect because all you know that all the humans are on that are checking this out in the bottom of the ocean. Uh, this is impacting and in influencing their behavior and causing them to act crazy and in a lot of uh, in, a, in a lot of crazy ways and that's where all the drama comes in we uh, we right away we're introduced to Captain Feld we know he's an, he's a recovering alcoholic we got uh, Burke Murphy we got Miss Vern we got Alexei we got all these characters and you get to know these characters in their interactions as they're checking out various portions of the ship of this new spaceship uh there's there's different portions of the ship when they're checking out different aspects and portions of the ship and uh now the and what they discover is that this ship that they're checking out is supposed to be falling apart but it's not falling apart and they don't really know why how what's keeping this ship together meanwhile aquaman shows up and he saves Yvette, uh, one of the characters, Yvette, and he saves saves some lives. And he basically tells them to get away from here. But he doesn't tell them why to get away from there. He just tells Yvette, he says, "Look, go back to your go back to your sea ship there, and tell him to get out get out of this area." And and the reason why he's telling him that is because this it's going to affect your crew. This thing is going to affect the behavior of your crew. In order to protect them, get them out of here. I'm going to handle this. This is actually built by Atlantis. It's an Atlantean prison. We need to get this sucker into space. Now, how he's going to do that, we don't know. We're going to have to wait till the next issue. But getting there is quite exciting. Meanwhile, Black Manta is doing his own machinations. And Black Manta himself, uh, he, he, you know, you know, you know that he's up to no good. But he's hired to try to, to try to figure out what the hell is going on and Black Manta himself, you know that if there's a creature there that has any sort of power that could potentially destroy Atlantis, you know probably Black Manta is probably going to want to release that creature to destroy Atlantis. And of course, since not if most people here, most people characters in the story they don't they are they are not aware of Arthur Curry, the Aquaman, so they're not really aware of Black Manta. And so that's what's that's what I love about this is that the, the the mythology and the myth and the legend of Aquaman himself is part of the central mystery of the story and the way that Aquaman shows up it's mysterious as well how he shows up he's this majestic mysterious almost horror looking creature of the sea but he saves them and then of course you got the more human human horror bad guy of Black Manta, who shows up and is also very threatening as well and uh, making his own threats in terms of how he wants things to go. And this works really well. Chris, uh, this story would not work as well as it does without the haunting uh, artistic genius of Christian Ward, uh, his coloring, his his artistic rendering, his illustrations, his transitions, absolutely beautiful. Uh, you go from, you, you go from deep, blackness redness to bright pink to yellow to uh uh just the just the, the visceral nature of the destruction of some of the characters how they're how they're killed how they meet their fate uh the way aquaman is shown in interacting with with the spaceship and the creatures and the sea life and 
the just the intimidating uh, nature and portrayal and majesty of the evil of uh, an intimidating nature of Black Manta, how Christian Ward portrays that. It really pops off the page. It's just really gorgeous stuff here. And just very well done. I'm so looking forward to see how this resolves. I believe it's only uh, it goes to book three, but I if it goes to book four, I'm not going to complain. I will be picking this up. This is definitely. I wish that uh, I just wish that all that hard work by Chuck, by that Chuck Brown did and Brandon uh, Thomas. I wish their work would have been as compelling as this in terms of a story. Uh, now I realize that. Ram V has the advantage of not having to restrict himself to the mainstream continuity, but this is the type of Aquaman story that I think I think readers would really love. If you love Aquaman, please pick up Andromeda. Don't like Aquaman is more interesting than how he's being portrayed. I'm sorry, but the the the, the Black Manta series by Chuck Brown that was not very well. That wasn't well received for a reason. It was just terrible. It wasn't well written. Uh, the Aquaman series, The Becoming, was really Jackson Hyde. It was not Arthur Curry. And again, it wasn't compelling. This is Arthur Curry, the original Aquaman. Very well done. Pick this up. Beautiful cover. And yeah, this is absolutely worth, uh, definitely worth checking out. Very much so worth checking out. So. Yeah, I give this a nine out of ten. By the way, uh, it's I, I'm I really enjoyed it. I mean, so many good comics this week. Okay, so the next one here, uh, Harley Quinn to Infinity. This is part one of what I think is going to be like a. This is like a weekly Harley Quinn comic. Now it's going to go weekly, where Harley Quinn apparently is. I think she gets she gets killed, but she doesn't get killed in this issue. But immediately, what's best about this issue? Uh, that's going to make so many people happy is that it's a different artist. And while I enjoyed and I got accustomed to Riley Rosmo's very stylistic art here, I got to say that the the art by uh, Jorge uh, Duarte, his uh, different artistic style here is one that's, I think, uh, going to appeal to um, many, probably the more traditional, uh, the more traditional Harley Quinn fan. This is Task Force XX. It's part one. And this is right away, visually, this feels like a very, very, very different. This feels like a totally different Harley Quinn comic book right off the bat. And I got to say, it felt so refreshing. And I don't mean, I don't say that as an insult to Riley Rosmo. It's just, it just did. It It just, it, it's sort of a nice change after, after uh, 17 issues of Riley Rosmo, uh, just changing up the style. Uh, I think it's, it, it worked well here. And, uh, and essentially what happens about, about half of this issue is just Harley Quinn. She's being essentially followed and what seemingly attacked by Killer Frost and Bronze Tagger. Uh, ben Turner, uh, and their job is to simply apprehend her and recruit her into Task Force X, X, and it's revealed that it's actually Luke, it's actually, it's actually Luke Fox that is, wants to recruit her. And unlike Amanda Waller, and uh, if Jace was here, Jace would be relieved to know that Amanda Waller is nowhere near this story, but Luke Fox, uh, the formerly Batwing, he Luke Fox wants to recruit. Uh, he wants to recruit Harley, and he wants to pay her. He doesn't want to put a bomb in her head. He actually wants to pay her and say, like, "I'll pay you, you know, whatever you want. I'll, you know, just tell me what you want." And Harley Quinn was very surprised. Uh, she looked at how much he was paying her, and 
we readers were not told how much she's getting paid, but she seemed to be quite happy with it. And But she wanted one additional thing, and that was she wanted to be able to bring in one of her other friends, and her other friend that she brought along was Solomon Grundy. <laughs> and why not? If you can pick your own friend, why not, uh, why not bring Solomon Grundy? And that's exactly what she does. And Luke Fox is essentially, they're going into space. Now, what the hell? Why would Luke Fox put together a team consisting of Solomon Grundy, uh, Harley Quinn, uh, Killer Frost, uh, uh, Dreadbolt, who's a teleporter, Lashina of Apocalypse, she's the former leader of the Female Furies, and Verdict from Samantha Payne, Verdict being... Uh, uh, well, we we know verdict from uh, the end of last issue where she uh, had her big battle with Harley Quinn, was defeated, but then was recruited by Task Force X. One thing about uh, – one of the things that I wanted to mention here is verdict here is going to look unrecognizable to people because Riley Rosmo's art – and I've said this before I, that if – I'm so used to seeing Harley. I'm so used to seeing – I'm so used to seeing verdict drawn under Riley Rosmo seeing her drawn by a different style artist. I, I didn't even know it was, I didn't even know it was verdict. I had to be told. I, I thought it, I actually thought it was Miracle Molly at first because it has pink hair and sort of shaved half side of the head. But uh, in any event, uh, you know, talk about the wrong stuff. Look at this. Huh? But uh, you know, it's, it's, this does sort of have like the right stuff, the you know the astronaut movie, the <laughs> sort of having like an Armageddon kind of feel to it because they're off to the moon, and the reason why they're off to the moon is they're looking for Element X because the, there's there's the old uh, Luke Fox says there's a there's a Justice League that the the moon the satellite on the just the Justice League moon base is abandoned now because the Justice League are dead. Deathstroke and the Secret Society of, is attacking various places all over the globe. The Teen Titans are a mess. There really is no other superhero group that can go to the moon to obtain something called Element X. Now, Element X is mixing with something from the dark, dark multiverse, and it's causing, it's mutating, and it's causing all kinds of chaos. And this Element X is something that uh, Jace Fox needs to apprehend. He needs to get a hold of it because it's mixing with something from the dark multiverse. And uh, we're not really sure exactly what that means or what's going to happen, but we know that it's they need to get it. And this issue ends with uh, them ultimately uh, flying toward the moon while a missile is been fired at them to destroy them. And so that's the big suspenseful way in which it ends. Tune in next week to see what happens. And in any event, interesting. It's interesting. I, I have to say, this is right away. There are so many interesting little things here. There's even uh, Stephanie Phillips here. Kudos to her. I found this to be funnier than in previous issues. There is an ongoing joke about Harley Quinn smelling. She smells like garlic. She was eating garlic. There's an ongoing joke about how she smells and about, you know, people were joking her, you know, what's that smell? What's that smell? And Harley would, you know, give some smart aleck response back and and the dialogue and the rapport uh was good and i have to say straight up this style of art works so much better than riley rosmo's i gotta tell you this art was really really good this was the right choice of artists for this kind of story this feels more like harley quinn to me straight up and this is a good thing just a good change of pace 
And I'm glad. And Harley Quinn to infinity and beyond. This is the way, way it goes. So uh, I think that if you're if you're someone that hasn't been picking up Harley Quinn because you haven't uh, enjoyed the uh, stylistic uh, inclinations of Riley Rosmo, check this one out because I think you'll like the Jorge Duarte's uh, art. Uh, and uh, Forgiato Jr. on the colors, they really do pop off the page here. And this is done really well. And I think that you guys will probably enjoy it as being more of a, more of the traditional type of Harley Quinn uh, visuals and story that maybe you're accustomed to. I love I love the adventures in space and the moon base. So Stephanie Phillips, uh, great job. And uh, Jose, Jose Duarte, great job on that as well. All right. Okay, DC Vampires issue eight out of twelve. Uh, wow, I've got to. St- I got to tell you that this is. Uh, I love this issue. This, you know, just when I was getting, I was getting a little bit sick and tired of DCV Vampires. We were getting multiple one shots and all this jazz, and I was getting really tired of this stuff. I got to tell you, but this issue pulled me back in. What's that old, uh, you know, that old thing? Just when I'm getting out. They pull me back in. So shame on you, Tinian and Rosenberg. But you did a damn good job on this one here. I'm real I'm I'm right back to being intrigued in terms of what's going on here. Because um uh also I, I gotta mention the covers here. Wow, there, there's a great cover of Batgirl. Looks incredible. Uh alternate cover, and then an alternate cover with a sick, disgusting looking Wonder Woman as some sort of like vampire creature. Wow. Uh, and, uh, I gotta tell you the art here by Otto Schmidt and Daniel, De- De Mon- Daniel D. Nicoalo uh, and colors by Otto Schmidt and Perlingui Casalino. Uh, in any event, um, this starts off at the house of secrets. John Constantine is bringing Damien and, uh, I think that's Frankenstein to the house of secrets because, uh, uh, or the the house of mystery, the house of secrets was destroyed. And this is the house of mystery and they're in the house of mystery. And that's where all the mystics are. The mystics, Dr. Fate, uh, Dr. Strange, uh, the specter, uh, Felix Faust. They're all there to try to figure out, you know, how to, to try to find out maybe there's some way utilizing magic to overcome the curse of the, the vampires to, you know, to try to, we, they, they know that, dipping these vampires in in a Lazarus pit will turn them back into humans, but they're still looking for a Lazarus pit. Uh, is there an, a magical way to help out as well? And that's sort of what they're looking in, in this particular issue. And, um, and uh, there, there's some really, I mean, there's some really funny scenes here where, you know, the, in their incantations and their magical experimenting, a lot of the People they're trying to help end up exploding, and <laughs> and some things don't work very well. And you got uh, you know Ma- uh, Matthew Rosenberg and uh, James and James Tiny in the fourth do a masterful job with the dialogue here. There's some really great dialogue. They really understand John Constantine in particular. His dry wit, his biting sense of humor is to great effect. There's great moments here between Black Canary and Green Arrow. They have sort of like a last roll in the hay, so to speak, uh, because they know that they're they're going to have to separate. Green Arrow and her, they, they, they're going to have to separate because uh, they, they're going to ultimately have to do battle, ultimately in order to take out Dick Grace and Nightwing, who is the head of the vampires. And they know that an epic battle is coming and, and they, they, they both know that, you know, there's a 
possibility that one or both of them uh, could be uh, could end up dying. And so there's a there's a great moment here, and it's done with humor and fun. So we got humor, fun, and action. And because these are two people that love each other, and they they also they're also warriors, and uh, they got to do what they got to do, and they they know that if they're gonna have some fun, they might as well have some fun now because they might not have a lot of fun later. Because let's face it, uh, Tiny and Tinian and Rosenberg have been killing heroes here, uh, left and right in this series. So you never know. <laughs> but uh, anyways, lots of fun here. Unfortunately uh, for the people within the House of Mystery, Jason Blood shows up. Jason Blood shows up with. Uh, Jason Blood shows up with uh, uh, Cersei, uh, Clary and the Witch Boy, uh, Raven and the Enchantress. And uh, they they essentially wipe out everyone in, in the House of Mystery and they make them forget, uh, actually play with their memory. The only one who manages to escape is John Constantine, uh, but he's literally burnt and, and the memory of the experience while John Constantine manages to escape the central power of the spell that was cast by Jason blood, which, which is never shown. Unfortunately, it does have its takes its toll on John Constantine. His body is badly burnt and he can't remember uh, what Jason blood made them all forget, but it's uh we're not shown what exactly has happened, but uh, so that's one of the one of the unfortunate things, but you never know. Maybe we're going to get a one shot of what that battle actually what happened in that battle. But I'd be really curious to know because that's that's a hell of a. I mean, all the top guns of magic in the DC universe were within the House of Mystery, and we never saw what went on in that battle. All we saw was the outcome with a burnt John Constantine. So I'm really curious because uh, he ends up uh, in Barbara Gordon's house, and Barbara Gordon just finished having a nightmare dream where she's basically, uh, where she was basically being intimate with Dick Grayson, who very sexually seduces her to become a vampire and she screams and of course she's thinking that she wants to end up killing Dick Grayson. and she knows that she's the one that will ultimately end up probably having to kill him um which is uh really unfortunate meanwhile uh but Batgirl eventually gets on her feet uh, she goes and she ends up uh confronting uh confronting Mr. Pig and uh, uh, some of other Batman's rogues in order to rescue Harley Quinn because they're experimenting on Harley Quinn because Harley Quinn's blood also contains the cure against the uh, vampires as well. So we got the Lazarus pits, which can be a potential cure. And we got Harley Quinn's blood is also a potential cure. And so uh, Babs is there. Barbara Gordon is there as Batgirl to rescue Harley Quinn. So she does that. And Frankenstein happens to be there and he asks, he asks Black Canary and Barbara Gordon if he could, you know, he pledges his allegiance to them. He wants to help them fight vampires, which is awesome because if you're fighting vampires, why not have Frankenstein on your side? Because that just makes so much sense. So that's awesome. That's really good to see. And uh, Harley Quinn is obviously very pissed off. She's ready to kick some ass, uh, but they're good to go now. Meanwhile, we also get a, another great scene. So much happens in this issue and so much fun. We, 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 we finally meet up with Car Car Supergirl, who is sort of like the master plan. At, at the end of issue two of the, I think it was DCV Vampires All Out War, Kara Supergirl was basically sort of rescued from oblivion, so to speak, smuggled out uh, to safety in the trunk of a car driven by Jan, uh, who of the Wonder Twins, who's the surviving Wonder Twin because, <laughs> because her brother Zan, or was it Zan was, was 
put in a blender by the Green Lantern in that opening awesome first issue. <laughs> in any event, uh, so Kara is being, uh, Kara still, it needs to be powered up by the sun, but there is no sun. The, the sunlight is, is blocked. Now, how the hell the earth can go without sunlight for so long and not destroy the planet? I don't know how that works, but they must be doing it magically somehow. But uh, they're, they're being, they're taking Kara to Australia. And uh, so John Henry Iron Steel is taking Kara to Australia and Black Manta is trying to protect her as well. And, and fortunately, they're, they're attacked by multiple sea creatures. And fortunately, uh, fortunately, uh, Zan shows up because apparently when her brother died, she acquired her brother's powers. So while her brother could change into water and she changed into an animal, now she can change into water and any form of animal. She has both powers herself. So it was actually kind of convenient that her brother died, although she'd never say that. <laughs> Certainly convenient for the reader. I always found the characters to be quite annoying, to be quite frank about it. Um, but in any event, it's kind of cool that we we now have an explanation because uh, one of the exp one of the criticisms of some earlier issues is that we saw we saw Zan. Uh, look like water, like she was forming water, but that didn't make sense to us because we thought she changed into an animal, so that seemed inconsistent. But now we know why she can actually do both. So now we have Zara, uh, now we have Kara, Zan with Black Manta and Steel traveling to Australia. Uh, at some point, hope some something in Australia will help power up Kara so she can become super powered again. And, um, and yeah, and uh, we got Green Arrow uh, and the Babs and Black Canary presumably heading toward uh, Gotham City to confront the head vampire, uh, Dick Grayson. So yeah, and this that's the end of issue eight of 12. So things continue to ramp up. I'd give this, I, I really enjoy this issue of DCV Vampires. I got to give this one a solid, solid seven and a half out of 10. I, I, I like that. I thought that was pretty good. Okay. All right, now, next comic, Batman Killing Joke, the final issue. Oh, Batman, oh, pardon me, Killing Joke, Batman Killing Time by Tom King. Well, last issue ended with the Clock King obtaining the Eye of Athena. And this Eye of Athena was something that uh, all the various, all the various villains uh, uh, uh including the Penguin, the Riddler, Catwoman, and this new character called the Help. They were all after this Eye of Athena, like because this Eye of Athena was something that was originally acquired by Rousel Gull, and it ultimately ended up in his safe uh, that of Bruce Wayne. And he put it in a, you know, he put it in a in a safety deposit box in a safe. And for some reason, they wanted to steal it. And and Raza Gall at some point must have given it to Bruce Wayne because Bruce Wayne was sort of like, I guess, his chosen one or something. It was his chosen heir. Originally, it was going to be the, the help. But uh, Bruce Wayne, he, he felt, even though the help was actually better than Bruce Wayne, a better fighter in some ways, according to Raza Gall, uh, Batman had, Bruce Wayne had an edge and that Batman was more wild and more unpredictable and, and just, I guess, better overall. In any event, uh, I, I got mixed feelings about this final issue. Uh, we'll, we'll get we'll get into it here. I uh, first uh, the covers, the variant covers are are really good. I mean, again, you got your pick of the crop here for some pretty damn good covers. 
Um, uh, this issue, the, the framing of this issue, it, it finally comes to, it, over the last six issues, Tom King has been sort of jumping between different timelines. He's been jumping back, you know, through various time periods back four or 5,000 years to a time of a death of a king, Aegis or some darn thing, uh, which was originally the origin of the, where this eye originated from. And, and then in this issue, we get, we find out that the person that's actually been narrating everything has been the, the clock king. And it actually makes more sense now because the clock king, it makes sense that the clock king would talk the way that Tom King has structured this narration about the, the time jumps all the time. And because the clocking is very precise in how he plans something, he knows exactly what's going to happen and when, because he's that good at predicting the future and planning. So he can predict almost down to the second, two or three weeks from now, what you're going to be doing if, as long as he's the one that's doing all the planning. And that's essentially what he does here. And it's discovered that it was really Clock King was the one that orchestrated. He's the buyer. We're always wondering who's been the buyer of the Eye of Athena. It's the Clock King. And the Clock King ended up picking up the Eye of Athena last issue. And in this issue here, all of it all plays out at the end. And it starts off, and again, we got multiple time jumps here. It can be a little bit frustrating maybe for some, but it does come together at the end. Reading this multiple times, a couple of times, it was more satisfying to me. And I thought this wasn't actually bad. Uh, this is the conclusion called Time, written by Tom King, art by David Marquez. And it's the Clock King, and he's waiting on uh, he's waiting on a uh, on a uh, stone fence in front of uh, looks to be Roman pillars, and he's actually waiting for Batman, who ends up showing at the end of the showing up at the end of the issue. But we get a bunch of time jumps in between this scene and the end of the issue uh, where we, we actually see how everything ultimately resolves itself. And boy, is it it's it's complete chaos is really what it is. And we, we discover that it was clocking that did all the machinations. We and and it sort of fills in the blanks that we've known about from the from the beginning. And it's basically been clocking that's been orchestrating things so that ultimately the Eye of Athena would be free on the battlefield and at on in Morin Park or whatever that was, so he could pick it up. And I'm not sure why he wanted the Eye of Athena. The Eye of Athena makes it makes no sense to own. It's it it, it really is just a trinket. That's what I don't understand. It it didn't it doesn't actually uh he he acquired the eye, but but so what? It doesn't do anything. Uh, there's a lot of action here. Batman Batman has his hands full. It shows Batman taking out snipers and military men and and uh, saving the lives of all the people that were killing each other in the battlefield. It ends up over like 134 people are killed, all from the machinations and the mastermind of the Clock King who orchestrated everything. And, uh, you know, at the end... Um, at the end, Batman just shows up. He Batman had sort of figured it. Says he he figured it out from the beginning, and he knew it was clocking for quite a while. And at the end, he just takes out clocking. But but here's one of the most uh, uh, one of the most uh, I think intriguing things, or one of the most uh, I think telling things, which I thought was kind of hilarious. I'm just I'm just going to jump to it if I could uh, just find it here. And it's a, it's an interaction between yeah. 
Catwoman and the help. This help was this, he's this, the help is this person who's trained by Ra's al Ghul, who was claimed by Ra's al Ghul to be even better than Batman at some, in, in, in most things. And Catwoman takes him out because apparently uh, the help who can classify any fighting style, he says, the help says to Catwoman, he's fighting Catwoman. He says, my word, woman, that's sensational. I see remnants of Vic Sage and a touch of Lady Shiva just in the angle below the elbow there. But most of it defies classification. The best I can do is say it's, but he, he <laughs> unfortunately, he can't finish the sentence because Catwoman knocks him out. So in actual fact, the help who, despite having fought Lady Shiva, Sage, Batman, he's fought all these people and could easily defeat them because he read them. Catwoman is the one person he can't defeat. Now I say that because we all know that Tom King has an absolute obsession with Catwoman. Catwoman is a character every time, every time Catwoman is written by Tom King, she does absolutely everything perfectly. She takes, she's taken out the flash. She's, she's taken out all the flashes. She's taken out superheroes. She's taken out, uh, she's saved Batman from Bane. She saved Batman from the Joker. She, she shows up. She's always the one who, who she cannot be defeated and she defeats Talia. I mean, it just, it goes on. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, Catwoman, literally is the Mary Sue in Tom King's universe but you know, <laughs> it is what it is I mean hey if you're a Catwoman fan and you want her never to be defeated don't worry just have Tom King write her and, and we saw the same thing of course in uh, uh, Batman Catwoman series that just ended a couple weeks ago by Tom King as well uh, Catwoman can do no wrong but I, so I find that was kind of interesting but it's all good I mean the help got what was coming to him and if it's gonna come from Catwoman so be it uh, meanwhile there's this there's this uh, the the character who always swears ends up getting shot in the head by the Riddler I mean she swears and says the four says vulgar four letter language all the time she ends up getting shot in the head and then at the end for some reason she wakes up with an obsession to want to take out Batman instead of the Riddler so the Riddler shoots her in the head. But yet at the end of this series, at the end of this series, she wakes up and she says, screw Batman, or in a more vulgar me, uh, vulgar manner. She's learning to walk again and she's she blames it all on Batman for some reason. I don't know. You know, uh, I mean, I get the obsession that people have with Batman, but if the Riddler shot me in the back of the head and paralyzed me, I would be upset with the Riddler, not Batman. I don't know what that has to do with the what her getting shot in the back of the head by the Riddler would have to do with Batman, uh, but there you have it. We got ultimately here. Uh, we uh, end up uh, seeing the fate of the Penguin as well. We end up uh, <laughs> we end up uh, seeing this 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 eye again. This so called eye of Athena. Uh, it's just it's just not a very big deal. It's just not a very big deal. Batman ends up sitting beside the clocking and they have a conversation. He predicts, he knows exactly what they're going to do. Bat Batman captures both Selina and the Riddler rather handily. They end up in Arkham Asylum and uh, Batman knocks out clocking while he's giving his ridiculous speech and he's quoting Shakespeare, or some such nonsense. And he knocks him out, kind of a funny sequence. And uh, yeah, and then Catwoman... And Riddler both seem to be acting kind of crazy in Arkham. So, yeah, it's it's different. I, I, I didn't mind it. Uh, it ends in 
the final scene shows the clock king on a jet looking at the eye of Athena in it in ironically enough a scene that takes place in the middle of the story uh, where he's just staring at the eye of Athena which again I, I don't understand why he was stealing it in the first place it, it doesn't do anything so I, I, I maybe I missed something people can explain to me in the comments below or uh, I just I th this seems like people were just People wanted to own this just for the, I mean, I could see maybe Indiana Jones and maybe, maybe his arch nemesis fighting over this for archaeological reasons because that belongs in the museum, right? Okay, I get it because it's just a trinket, but it's a very important historical trinket and it belongs in a museum, but this really doesn't give you any power. So from a superhero point of view or supervillain point of view, this is a totally, what a waste of time. And 134 people died over this. So I can understand Batman being pissed off, but why did Batman Bruce Wayne make such a big deal out of it, putting it in his safe? Like, I don't, I, this thing is just nonsense to me. Give it back to Ra's al Ghul. Why'd you give me a, it's a, it's a piece of cement that's shaped like an eyeball. It's ridiculous. Anyways, maybe I missed something, but I have to read this for a third time, but whatever. But anyways, it's not bad. I don't mind the six issues. It had some fun, fun moments, action packed. And it just goes to show you that people will fight to the death over the most ridiculous of things. So, but, you know, it is what it is. It's fun. It was a fun issue. And Clock King got his comeuppance. And I actually, I, actually, I enjoyed myself. It was, it, uh, it, I think this is one of the, uh, uh, I, I think that most people, even if you're not a Tom King fan, I am a Tom King fan for the most part. I, and I enjoyed it for what it's worth, but I know a lot of people who are not, and I think they'll probably enjoy this more than most of his stuff. Uh, but you never know. We'll have to wait and see. Okay, now, uh, finally, we're getting to Flashpoint Beyond. Flashpoint Beyond, issue four. Wow. Uh, this is... Uh, this is a flashpoint beyond uh, Jeff Johns, uh, Jeremy Adams and Tim Sheridan have uh, they I don't know how they're splitting up the scripting of this series, but I got to tell you, uh, they're doing a really good job, a really good job. First, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Jeff Johns, Tim Sheridan, uh, Jeremy Adams, writers. Great job. Uh, and the extra Monaco on the art. Mikhail Janin on the art, uh, Fajardo Jr. and Jody Polaire doing the colors. Uh, first, we look at the alternate cover. Uh, the, the cardstock cover, has, it shows uh, Gilda Dent as Two-Face in the Flashpoint universe on the cover. You know, beautifully done. And then we got cover C, uh, which shows uh, the Grifter along with uh demon and i'm not sure why these characters are on flashpoint beyond on, on this particular cover because they don't show up anywhere in issue four so it makes me wonder is grifter and some of these other characters going to be showing up and the demon showing up elsewhere in flashpoint beyond uh uh five or six i don't know it seems really weird to me and uh, now um there is a Flashpoint Beyond 4. There is a cover with the Flashes on it with Wave Rider, Flash, Jay Garrick, and uh, uh, Impulse. And I'm not sure who some of those other characters are. Uh, and Parallax, and, and Wave Rider, and Extant. 
and Hawkman, Green Arrow. And these are all characters that perhaps have some powers uh, in regard to the time and space. So could one of them be the clockwork killer? Uh, could, you know, because who is the clockwork killer? I mean, we're, there's many candidates, but in any event, uh, what, what this, uh, what's interesting about this is this, this shows, this issue has, has, uh, Thomas Wayne is trying to figure out, you know, he, he's doing an autopsy on, uh, Eobold Thon, who, the reverse flash was his body shows up in Iris Allen's basically apartment. And she, and he's, he's got a bunch of clock pieces in his, in his belly. So the clockwork killer kills them and puts clockwork pieces in the, in their belly. And what Thomas Wayne does is that he takes the clock pieces out and he figures out that all the pieces to this clock are from the same clock. And where the epiphany comes in for him is that he realizes that the clock, that the missing piece of the clock is actually in the grandfather clock that he has in Wayne Manor that leads him into the Batcave. And that's what's kind of a big deal here. And, uh, but as he's figuring out that big revelation, uh, and it's, I'm sure... That's not much of a revelation per se, because it doesn't tell. It still doesn't tell us who the clockwork killer is. But just we got to be patient here, because in the meantime, we got we got young Dexter Dent, the son of Gilda and Harvey Dent. He's sort of like the new Robin. He's left to explore. The Penguin lets this kid explore, do does whatever he wants, and Dexter Dent wants to break into Arkham Asylum and 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 rescue his mother because. Uh, He's because he wants to get her out of there because it's it's not a good place to be. And in the meantime, you know, uh, the Penguin is really fed up with Thomas Wayne. And the dialogue here in the scripting is so well because Thomas Wayne doesn't care about anything because in Thomas Wayne's mind, nothing matters. This universe is this earth is not supposed to exist. This earth's not supposed to exist. This, this isn't right. Uh, I don't care about Dexter Dennett. I don't care about this kid if he's going to be, if he's in danger or in harm's way. Everyone, sh- I don't care if Wonder Woman is, is a, if, if the, if Wonder Woman is taking the Amazons and declaring war and there's a World War Three or World War Four now or whatever the hell it is in the Flashpoint universe, he doesn't care. In Thomas Wayne's mind, his job is to make sure that this universe essentially is undone and that now that he's got to undo the damage so that he, the Flashpoint universe, the Flashpoint paradox does not exist. That's what he needs to do. But the Penguin can't believe that he's so indifferent about this. And the Penguin gets angry with him. And uh, and uh, and he, he tells him, like, you know, the Penguin tells him, look, time is of the essence. You got to go to Dexter. You got to rescue Dexter. And in any event, Dexter ends up going into Arkham Asylum and... You know, does a pretty good job knocking out the guards, and he wants to go, and he wants he wants to. Oh, he he wants to let rescue his mother, and as he's rescuing his mother, uh, there's a great artistically there's a great sequence here. Because Exomanico on the art does a great uh, juxtaposition beside each other, as young Dexter is breaking into Arkham to rescue his mother, it shows. Thomas Wayne 
you know, putting together the, the clock pieces that he's taken out of the body of Urbalthan. And as Dexter discovers his mother and rescues his mother, uh, Thomas Wayne is putting together the pieces as to who is the clockwork killer. You know, what, what, what does all this mean? And it becomes clear, (laughs) it becomes clear near the end that Thomas Wayne, he says, it's impossible. He says, if I'm right, if this means what I think it does, it's impossible. And he goes and he looks for the missing piece of the clock in his own uh, grandfather clock. And just as Dexter himself is, you know, I mean, how could, if this, if the clockwork killer is using pieces from the grandfather clock and it's the same clock, then much to Thomas Wayne's dismay, the clockwork killer is Martha, the Joker. The Joker of of the Flashpoint paradox is Martha Wayne, and because only Martha would know the pieces of that particular clock, and so you got to wonder. But if does this mean that does this mean that Martha Wayne, who is the Joker, that she's the clockwork killer? Because I didn't think she's not a genius. I mean, she's not somebody who's an expert on space and time. That were that I'm aware of. I mean, although I suppose she could be, but how could she be? That doesn't really make a lot of sense. And meanwhile, uh, we have uh, we have Bruce Wayne in in our Earth trying to figure out what uh, trying to figure out exactly what is going on and what what Bruce Wayne ends up being told. <laughs> By Corky, uh, I think it, what is it, Corky Baxter? What's this kid's name? This this one of these members of the Time Masters. He says, "Look, he sa- he says to Bruce Wayne, there's so much you don't know about your own mother that even Thomas Wayne would have discovered, but she had died. But she's she's alive in the Flashpoint universe. Martha Wayne is alive, and so Corky Baxter is telling Bruce Wayne, look, you actually don't know something about your mother that there's secrets.'" that you don't know about her that and and you, now i got to wonder well is martha wayne was she secretly a genius does she have an iq of 200 that she knew the secrets of space and time what is it that we don't know about martha wayne if martha wayne had lived in the mainstream universe had martha wayne not been killed by an assassin's bullet along with her husband thomas would martha wayne had grown up to become a villain what was the secret of martha wayne that is now going to be revealed and uh, presumably the Martha Wayne might be similar to the one that is maybe in the Flashpoint universe. The Flashpoint universe, Martha Wayne became the Joker. Would Martha, had she lived in the mainstream universe, would she have become something akin to a Joker as well? Would she have become insane? What or What are the other secrets of Martha Wayne? What is it about Martha Wayne that is so secretive the secret of flashpoint beyond is what is teased for next issue and i'm really really curious to see where they're going to be going uh 
where they're, where they're going to be going with this because this is something. He says, things you don't know about things from her past, meaning his mother, things you didn't realize your dad was going to have to face in there. You see, I warned you, Batman. Now he's talking to Bruce Wayne. I really did. You don't know everything about everything this time. You don't know the truth about your mom. Now that is a kicker. Because we know a lot about Thomas Wayne, don't we? We got a lot of Thomas Wayne from Flashpoint. We got a lot of Thomas Wayne in uh, Tom King's Batman. and uh, But we never got much about Martha Wayne. But now we're going to get it. And she's the secret. Is she the clockwork killer? We don't know. But we're going to find out. Fantastic issue again. Man, uh, things get... Uh, Really good stuff. Really good stuff. So great to see Martha Wayne back. We thought she had been killed. We thought she was dead, but she most certainly is not. So where this is going to go, where this ends up, we don't know. But man, uh, I got to tell you, all in all, guys, this week has been just absolutely incredible for um, for comic books. I, uh, In terms of, uh, I'm trying to think, what would be my pick of the week? What would be my pick of the week? I got to say, man, this is tough. This is tough. I I think I would probably, oh man, we're going to have to have a, we're going to have to have a tie here. I really enjoyed, man, I would probably give Flashpoint Beyond just the win. I would give Flashpoint Beyond. I loved it so much. I give it a 9.2 out of 10. I would follow that up with uh, Batman, uh, which I would probably give uh, a solid 8. I really like Batman with the flat, with failsafe, those action sequences, followed by DCV Vampires, uh, issue 8 out of 12. And I would then go with Dark Crisis in fourth place, followed by the new champion of Shazam in fifth place and Teen Justice followed by Batman Killing Time, Batman Neo Year, Poison Ivy and Black Adam Cyclone. Man, it was a good week for DC Comics, guys. Really good week. And again, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that Chase wasn't here, uh, but I encourage you all to check. I hope you check this out. Uh, if you can, you can either check this out on my, uh, if you don't check it out on my YouTube channel, uh, comic boom exclamation mark check it out at the comic source podcast you can hear that at the comic source podcast i apologize for those listening on the comic source podcast that you're only hearing my voice chase isn't around uh but i wish him well we should all wish him well he's uh, recovering from uh, covid so wish him well uh you can leave comments below to that effect and if you have uh let me know what you guys think about the about the comic books this week. I think there were some really great ones. What was your favorite and why? Let me know in the comments below. And in the meantime, guys, uh thank you for watching. Hit the subscribe button. Uh follow me on Twitter at Metropolis40. Follow uh Jace of the Comic Source Podcast at the uh the Comic Source Podcast at, on Twitter and check out uh, his uh comic source uh website and until then comic boom out you can find the comic source podcast on spotify apple podcast stitcher google play or whichever podcasting app you prefer please tell all your friends about us subscribe and rate us the ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners especially five-star reviews on apple 
Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.